following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, The Matrix Resurrections, Toy Story 4, Return of the Jedi, Superman, Final Destination, Terminator 2, Mad Men, The Expanse, Looney Tunes, The Mandalorian, Tron 3D, and Kung Fu Panda. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie and then try to determine which one is cooler, Robots, Dinosaurs, or 195 Agent Smiths. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host. Uh, in this case, every time I'm reviewing a Matrix movie, I've got my trusty returning heavyweight champion co-host, Conrado Falco, but we've also got another guest on today to help us talk about one of the Matrix sequels. Uh, so I also have writer and director, A.B. Seidel. So welcome to the show, Conrado and A.B. Hey, Lou. <laughs> hey, Lou. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. I actually uh, have decided that I want a new title for my appearances on Robots vs. Uh, Dinosaurs, and that is title of the Merovingian. Hmm. Mm. The Merovingian. Okay. Le, can I call you Le Merovingian just to add a little bit of French to it? Of course. Because as we know, we've sampled all of the languages of the known world, and French is by far the best, especially for cursing. Yes. And uh, anyone, yeah. who kn- <laughs> uh, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a twin, but unfortunately, I, I lack the ability to phase in and out of materials. Do you carry a straight razor with you everywhere you go? Yeah, I also don't have dreads, so uh, for anyone I was, listening. I was just about to make a joke about your dreadlocks. <laughs> Um, Ab, are you are you really a twin? Uh, tell tell the listeners I'm really a little a bit twin, about yourself. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, Lou, we met in college, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm from Queens. Um, I have said this on uh, other podcasts with Conrado, but I like to say that Queens is the only thing I'm a nationalist about. Um, I have like a lot of tribal pride about Queens, um, and I've been making movies for you know over a decade now, uh, and I think The Matrix Reloaded. Um, played a pretty formative role in my my early movie making and movie going experiences. So I'm really I'm really excited to talk about it. Awesome. I'm excited to have you on today to talk about it as well. Um, the Matrix Reloaded is the movie we're talking about today. And this is, of course, the first sequel to The Matrix. Uh, this is also, I would argue, the horniest of The Matrix movies. Um, as we find out later on when Neo is talking to the architect, uh, this is apparently in-universe the sixth version of the matrix it's it's version 6.0 but it's possible i think that there have been updates this is most likely matrix 6.9 a i'm sorry for that (laughs) (laughs) um but i think my thesis statement stands this is this is a very horny movie am i right um yeah i think so i mean definitely for matrix standards i think you're right that this is probably the horniest (laughs) Maybe the newest one, Resurrections, has some horniness in it. But yeah, it Resurrections have a four and a half minute orgy. No, it's certainly the most ecstatic Matrix movie. Like, mm. I think this one experiences orgasm. You know, I think like horniness oh, okay, exists in the okay. other. But I feel like this one climaxes. Sometimes a cake induced uh, orgasm. Exactly. Oh, that's that's exactly it, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, there's a lot. There's a lot actually. Like once you start noticing it, 
how horny this movie is. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a celebration of humanity in the end, Absolutely. right? It's yeah. And love. It's, it's a celebration of all the things that make us human and not machines. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so this movie is of course directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski. Uh, it stars Larry Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, Keanu Reeves, Hugo Weaving, Gloria Foster returning for um, this. Gloria Foster is just like, like you just like, hey, Glor- hey, Miss Foster, we just need you to sit on a park bench and just be iconic. And she's like, yeah, all right. It's Tuesday afternoon. I got you. Like, it just seems so effortless for her, right? She loves candy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this movie picks up about how long after the first Matrix? How much time has passed? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't think it's ever said explicitly, right? Maybe like a couple of weeks, they say? It's been a while, I think. Yeah. Um, well, Lou, you're sort of getting at something I really wanted to talk about, actually, mm-hmm. which I think The Matrix Reloaded is... So first of all, I just want to like off the bat say to anyone listening, The Matrix Reloaded is my personal favorite Matrix movie. I actually think it is the best Matrix movie. Um, and I may be hot and I've defended it throughout my life. It's also actually the first Matrix movie I ever saw. Um, I saw it before oh. the first Matrix. It's the first R-rated movie I saw in theaters. My uncle took me. I don't know why that happened. I mean, because did. everyone was seeing it. It was the <laughs> sequel to The Matrix. Were exactly. you completely confused? Oh, like, seeing the... The experience was like entirely aesthetic for yeah. me. There was no narrative comprehension at all. I was one too young to understand it, I think. Okay. Um, but it was just just vibes. And I think I'd never really experienced like punk anti-authority vibes like that f- badass before. So as a little kid, it I think profoundly changed uh, a lot for me. Um, but I didn't understand a lick of it. And I don't know that I now understand any of it either. But... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, let's see if you under, let's see how much you understand of it. Do either of you want to give an elevator pitch, um, just like like a like a thirty second synopsis of this plot? I can give you a one second pitch, which is what they gave, which is it's a sequel to The Matrix. That's all you need to know for the movie to be greenlit in an elevator. Yeah, know? but as we just found out, Granada, there are some audience members that have never seen a Matrix. They don't know what that is, and they're coming to this movie fresh. So, so what would you tell them? This movie's going to so be about. So I would say. Yeah, so um, so at the end of the first Matrix, Neo um, completely embraces the fact that he is the one and he saves Morpheus and he is able to fly and become Superman, basically. And Rage Against the Machine plays in the credits and everyone's pumped for what's going to come next. So this movie picks up pretty much saying that um, the machines are coming for Zion, which is the last human city remaining. And it's the, and they're basically coming here to destroy it. It's like war. Uh, the one has entered the pictures. So the machine said, all right, it's time to wrap it up. Let's destroy humanity. Let's go for the city. And the people at the city don't really know how to, how to defend themselves. Um, there's a little bit of friction between the captains. Um, but of course, Morpheus is a complete salad about the one. And he says, we need to, finish the one's trajectory and that's what's going to save us. So they go into the matrix um, to try to finish the one's trajectory, which is, you know, they go to see the Oracle, the Oracle tells Neo what to do. They do what they have to do and they get to the end to the um, architect, architect. Yeah. Yeah. The source. Yeah. 
the source yeah so the thing is the one has to go to the source and that's when the war will be over says the prophecy so they so this movie i think it's basically trying to get to the source as soon as possible because the machines are coming to kill zion it's what i would say it's maybe the main plot and i think what the movie is about then is at least in my mind this movie is like interrogating the nature of control you know Mm -hmm. the first movie says like our reality is a lie uh, our, you know, the world you live in is fake. And the first movie is about recognizing that this movie is about understanding it. Um, mm-hmm. And as a result, I think it becomes a lot more complicated. It says it's not enough to recognize that you have free will. You have to understand your choices. Yeah. So, because basically every single scene in the movie is Neo encountering a different character who tells him, I know that you're making these choices, but do you know why you're making them over and over? Yeah, Yeah, I love that take. There's that conversation he has with the counselor where they go down to the engineering room underneath Mm -hmm. Zion, and he's saying, you know, these machines are keeping us alive uh, while while others are trying to kill us. And he says, like, we're plugged into them, but they're plugged into us. And what would happen Mm -hmm. if we shut them down? I think he literally says in that scene, what is control? Yes, Um, absolutely. And I think it's part of the point of this movie is saying this war is coming, this inevitable, this feelingly, the seemingly inevitable war. And yet that war is maybe futile because the truth, at least according to that council member and to the Oracle and eventually to Neo, is that humans and machines, that breakdown, it's also a binary that needs to be broken down because this movie is filled with machines and programs who defy the, the sort of antagonist role and actually are helping Neo. Of course, the big revelation when we meet the Oracle again in this movie is Neo recognizing her as a program. Mm. I love that. It's like we we discover that we have this anemone clownfish relationship, this symbiosis, and yes. finding out that the Oracle is a program, um, that's really cool. And the more, like, this didn't click for me the first time I saw this movie, but the more I've learned about how computers work, how programming works, it's, it's not that she's a prophet that can literally see the future. She's an algorithm. She mm-hmm. has compiled data from five other versions of the Matrix and history of this exact sequence of events happening. And that's how she's able to accurately, just like an algorithm, just like a computer algorithm, uh, take da- data, extrapolate it, and come up with a pretty much accurate conclusion that tells the future. It's like weather weather prediction almost, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... What what is also great about that I think, which we talked about when we talked about the Matrix as well, was the is the idea that the Wachowskis bring to it that even the programs and and the computers have a element of choice to them, you know. So even the Oracle and the Merovingian and all these other programs that have been you know programmed to do a specific task have the opportunity at one point or another to uh, change that and and act against it or like you know go in different wild decisions which is i think kind of what the oracle is doing we talked about this by making neo and trinity kind of pushing them to fall in love a little Mm. bit manipulating them um and we can talk more about that and the role that love plays into it and also i just want to put this out there because this Mm -hmm. is like i told you lou that when we talked about the first movie my one of my tasks during this matrix march madness month that we're having is for me to understand the character and the role that Agent Smith plays in the movies. Because he is the biggest part of the movies that I feel like I still don't fully understand. Oh, interesting. Hmm. And I really want to crack that. So I think there's a lot in this movie to get at there, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do, AB, do you have a take on that? Do you have a take on Oh, for sure. Agent I mean, Smith's I think purpose? 
Smith in the in the main trilogy, and I think to some extent in Matrix Resurrections, but I'll leave that for a later conversation. Mm. I think Smith is Neo's foil. Um, I think in a lot of ways, Morpheus, Trinity, and Smith are all sort of reflections or refractions of Neo. It's all this sort of same idea of of a character who has been freed from the lie, the big lie that we live in a system of control. And they are different, sometimes sympathetic, but in the case of Smith, opposing reactions to that revelation. Smith, like Neo, is someone who who realizes that he is being controlled against his will. And his reaction to it is nihilism, is this belief that the only rational response to a world that deprives you of your agency is destruction and Mm. desolation. And so I think that's muddied a bit or can be muddied a bit when you see Smith copy himself. But what that really is, is saying, you know, I'm the only thing that exists because Mm. everything else is a lie. Mm. Um, Whereas Neo is, Neo is all about selflessness and self-sacrificing. The only thing that matters is everyone else. Yeah. And I think that's why Smith is so focused on inevitability Mm -hmm. uh, because, because if you, if you look at it one way, what the matrix is, um, it's it's like a, if you compare it to the all of human history, evolution, biology, how long humans have been around versus how long the matrix and the and the programs making it up have been have been around. The it's like a parent child relationship almost. We created these machines, we created computers and programs, and then once they became self aware, it's like they grew up and they resented their parents for certain things, but also realized we kind of rely on our parents, but there's like this push and pull where inevitably we have to destroy our parents to become self-sufficient, to not be controlled and only do what they want us to do. And that, mm-hmm. and that like to Smith, that's a violent, inevitable clashing of the two of the two things. He also kind of turns this way because of Neo, right? It's what he Absolutely. says at the beginning. And, and it, it's almost like if, you know, kind of, it's, it reminds me, of like Jesus of like you know in the in the Bible there's all these stories about people who met Jesus and then they changed their life for good but it's almost like the opposite like Neo kind of entered Smith at the end of uh, the first Matrix and then Smith kind of like cracked somehow and you know kind of like went rogue see he had the ability to have free will and break from everything that he was programmed to do but also he became completely egocentric and maniacal even more so than before right Mm. Yes. Although it's funny because I think Smith in this throughout this movie isn't really sure how to feel about it. He's been freed in a way, Mm -hmm. but in that freedom, he's become purposeless. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the challenge that leads to his, I think, despair. He says, I wrote this quote down because I love it so much. Uh, He says, now I hear I stand because of you, Mr. Anderson, because of you. I'm no longer an agent of this system because of you. I've changed. I'm unplugged. A new man, so uh, so to speak, like you, apparently free. Neo says, congratulations. And Agent Smith says, thank you. Mm. (laughs) I I apologize if this is a spoiler for anybody, but it's like Woody in Toy Story 4. Mm. He has realized that he like he has outlived his purpose at this point and it's yes. it's all his journey at this point is what do i do now like what do i i can't be in control i can't tell it my, that time has passed so what do i do now that my purpose is fulfilled you know because i just i don't i can't just stop being and, and stop wanting things so i have to find a place to put that and i think it's also a great comment on the whole idea of why would you 
decide to leave the matrix, right? Why would you take the red pill? Um, mm. And what happens if you take the red pill without purpose, without the the whole being a human who wants to liberate humanity, of having that mission and that, you know, life purpose to yourself? I think part of the appeal of realizing that the world is fake is to be able to change it. But when you are Smith and you don't have a purpose like that, you end up just replicating yourself and like, you know, digging um, this kind of black hole of emotion. Mm. Absolutely. It's very adolescent, Smith. Yes, that's a great, that's a great word for it. A.B., uh, uh, Conrado and I talked about this in the last episode, but would you, um, if presented with the choice, would you take the red pill or the blue pill? Yes, I would take the red pill. I think that something the Matrix movies express really beautifully, uh, and that's something that speaks to me, is this feeling that if, you know, the systems of control that surround us, if our world is a lie, you know it whether you own up to it or not, and the truth exists. You know, owning up to it doesn't make it worse. Uh, mm. it, and I, I've always believed that, like, owning up to the truth makes it more bearable. And if this movie is posing that, you know, free will exists in our understanding of our actions, not in our actions themselves, because like the Oracle says, she can predict what we do. So if she's predicting what we do, do we really did we really choose? And she says, of course you did, if you understood why you acted the way you acted. And I think the red pill is exactly that. Taking the, choosing to take the red pill is choosing to understand the world you live in. So mm. yeah, I would, yeah, I would do that. There's that great moment where the counselor is talking to Morpheus, and I think his name is Captain Locke. Um, mm-hmm. And they're debating <laughs> about whether or not they should, like the machines, create an illusion, lie to the people of Zion about the danger that they're facing. And Morpheus, of course, because it's who he is at his core, is like, no, we'll tell them the truth because the truth can't, can't hurt That's them. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that moment comes right after one of my favorite quotes in the movie, which is like, I feel like this movie is filled with Morpheus saying like the most overt Morpheusisms <laughs> in the coolest way. Yeah. Like, so that I, I wrote this one down too. And I apologize to everyone for my horrible, like half-assed attempts at impressions here. Go for it. Um, but Locke said, you know, they're, they're debating how to save the city. And Locke is saying like, you disobeyed me and you're taking my ships when we need our ships. And um, Morpheus says, with all due respect, Commander, there is only one way to save this city. And Locke says, how? And Morpheus says, Neo. And Locke like, loses it. He's like, God damn it, Morpheus. Not everyone <laughs> believes what you believe. <laughs> yeah. Morpheus says, my beliefs do not require them to. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, that is the most Morpheus shit ever. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, I love that there's a through line that like Morpheus might be crazy. Because the first movie convinces yeah. me as the audience member, at least, like, oh, this guy really is a prophet. Everything he's saying comes true. And then the second movie really introduces a lot of doubt about him. Totally. Mm-hmm. Conrado earlier called him a zealot. I think that's exactly mm-hmm. right. Well, mm-hmm. he's 100%. He just believes in Neo and the prophecy 100%. Up to the end of this movie, right? The whole movie ends with Neo telling him, listen, bro, it was a lie. Like, you know, it, like they're controlling us. And Morpheus doesn't really believe him. He believes in him, but he doesn't believe what Neo just learned. And that's Morpheus's own journey in this movie, right? He goes from, I mean, we're jumping kind of straight to the end here, but Morpheus goes from believing in the one to believing in Neo, which is a really big transition, I think. Mm. Yeah, I wrote down, I wrote down this sort of sequence of events that it's okay that we're jumping around on the timeline of the movie, but um, the, where he, he's like talking about, he literally is saying, I do not believe in chance. And while he's giving this speech, it's when they're sort of going over like the plan that's happening they're going to break into the building. And while he's giving this speech, there's like the final destination sequence where you see the guy going 
going across the ru- the walkway and it's rusted. And then when he comes back, it like causes him to fall and then it impales the other guy. And then because of that, the other team gets killed. They can't complete their part of the mission. But it's like Morpheus is wrong because that's a coincidence. But then because of that, Trinity goes into the Matrix, which fulfills Neo's dream of what was going to happen. So Morpheus was right. And like that little coincidence wasn't a coincidence, even though it was shown to be a just... A coincidence. I don't know. It's like it's really hard. It, it's it's a Mobius strip. It's a it's hard to wrap your mind around. It is, and it, it gets it. I think some of the religious subtext in these movies that you know, obviously, I think Revolutions really hits the hardest, but mm. begins to really rear its head in this one. And I I think it's a beautiful part of the Matrix. I mean, even in the opening uh, with like the flying through the green text, you have not just these digital symbols, but you have this moment, this very like small moment of kind of psychedelic fractals mm. in, in the green that are not digital symbols, but like are very psychedelic symbols. And I think that in that there's something to the matrix is a program so vast and complex that even though it's, you know, a, a construct, it's a lie, it contains the real mysteries of the universe. And I think similarly, the world outside the matrix is the same way. Our lives, the coincidences, all of these are part of some system that is so vast. We can't really comprehend it or even see it, mm. but it's there, mm-hmm. you know? And at the same time, it's important that we try to comprehend it, right? And that we try to understand it. Absolutely. Yeah, because once you know it, once you can see the code, then you can sort of rewrite the code. And that's when you become like Trinity and Morpheus and you can do cool acrobatic shit. I love that, Lou, because it's also so explicit in this movie that Neo is seeing the code. It's something Mm -hmm. that happens in the climax of the first movie. And here it's consistently happening throughout Mm -hmm. where he engages with the Matrix not on the layer of like surface representation. He doesn't see, you know, a, a person and, and he doesn't see like a character like Seraph. He doesn't see as a guy. Yeah. He sees as a glowing golden God, you know? Yeah. And I they, think that's uh, really interesting. Uh, it's, what does Joe Pantoliano say in the uh, cipher, say in the first movie, he's like um, blonde. I don't even see it. It's like blonde, brunette, redhead. He's just pointing at like the yes. falling numbers. Like, um, yeah, I love that in the opening of this, we get, it's kind of the same opening as the first one, but it's a lot more complex. It's more like more, more detailed kanji and symbols and everything. And it turns into the gears of a clock. And then we see like security guard punching into the clock. Um, mm-hmm. And then Trinity drops a motorcycle bomb on everything. And the it's, coolest it's, fucking it's shit awesome. <laughs> yeah. And kills everyone with her motorcycle helmet. I'm in. Oh my God, <laughs> it's in. so good. Is Trinity so the good. greatest uh, action hero of any of film of all time, probably I think I, the coolest. She's up the there, and I think one. she's definitely one of the coolest and one of the yeah. most iconic. Right, like everything she does is fucking awesome. I also just like want to shout out Carrie Ann Moss's facility with motorcycles mm. is a tremendous part of what makes her, I think, such an iconic action hero. What do you mean? Is well, I'd never, I've never seen anyone before or after ride a motorcycle like her. Um, there, part of it is, I think, the fact that, you know, it's not a dude. It's not Tom Cruise on a motorcycle, which is mm-hmm. like a sort of silhouette, like a physical, a physicality I'm familiar with. I feel like just the way she and the motorcycle feel so fluid and connected. I mean, and in that first scene, using the motorcycle as a weapon, using the helmet as a weapon, it's this like real expression of character through action. It's, Trinity just feels like, not to sound super matrixy, but like one with motorcycles, you know? It's giving me Akira very much, right? Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. 
Um, you were saying something about this earlier, Lou, and I think the core of you, oh, you said that the opening is more complex than the first one. And I think that degree of complexity is the main thing that separates Matrix Reloaded from The Matrix. I think this is just a way more complicated movie. And I think I kind of like to think of The Matrix Reloaded as a movie that's filled with all of these litmus tests for the audience. Ooh, and yeah. I think there are really big ones. Like <laughs> <laughs> that's why so many people didn't like it. It's why it truly, <laughs> truly, yeah, because it challenges. Like, them and there are, there are so many litmus tests. Like there, are, and I've asked people over the years because a lot of people don't like this movie. Mm-hmm. It, it can be little ones like people just you know don't like the rave scene, which I actually think, for what it's worth, isn't them not liking the rave scene. I think that mm-hmm. is people not vibing with Morpheus's speech pre-rave. Because mm-hmm. I think if you're roused by that speech, then you're ready to party. You know. Well said. Well said. But I think there are big litmus tests too. Like, for example, can you tolerate a movie where most of its exposition has been outsourced to another movie, The Animatrix, and a video game, Enter the Matrix? Mm. Mm -hmm. Like, unless you've seen The Animatrix and watched the cutscenes in Enter the Matrix, Mm -hmm. you're going to meet a character like Niobe and have no idea who she is or what she's doing. And And the kid also, right? And the kid, the kid, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not only that, but then you have a bunch of a movie comprised of, you know, I don't know, 30% action sequences and 70% scenes of people talking about stuff that you assume would be exposition, but isn't really because the exposition has been done already. And it's just like philosophical uh, degrees of complexity about what's going on, right? They're just going back and forth, talking about the themes of the movie, basically saying like, what is this movie about? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the kid is such an interesting example, Lou, because I assume, have you guys both seen the Animatrix? Love it. Yeah, I've seen uh, it. I just watched it recently, too, just to refresh myself on it. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. Yeah. Conrad, have you seen it? I have seen it, but I haven't seen it recently. I forgot to watch it before this. That's fine. But that kid who, you know, like is very overeager to meet Neo at the beginning of the movie, tells, says like, Neo, you saved me. And Neo says, you saved yourself. Like we, that kid has a whole segment of the Animatrix devoted to him. And we learn in that short that he's the only person who's ever uh, brought himself out of the matrix through, you know, sheer will. He didn't have like someone guide him down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. He just like woke himself up. Um, right. And he did it because he heard Neo and he believes yeah. that Neo guided him. But Neo's like, no, you did it yourself. He's kind of like bugs in, in matrix four yeah. where it's like he encountered Neo from a observer standpoint and that inspired him to, to be, break free. Um, I was paying attention this time when I watched it because it's always like, I've always, I have this memory of the first time I saw this movie that the kid was kind of introduced as this thread that doesn't go anywhere. And I was paying a little more attention this time. And what I noticed is when he's introduced, Trinity says, you know what they say about the life you save? Um, maybe your Mm -hmm. own, you know, she she doesn't complete the the aphorism, but that's the, you know, saving him might save you in the future is what she's implying. And later, when Bane gets taken over by Agent Smith, he's about to stab Neo in the back, and Neo wouldn't have turned around and, and been saved unless Kid just happened to be running up and being annoying at that moment, being, Neo! Um, so he actually was consequential to, and very important to the plot in a Absolutely. loose Absolutely. And way. of course, but, in Revolutions, he plays a pivotal role in... yeah. I mean, spoilers, but (laughs) it plays a pivotal role in ultimately opening the gate for the ship to return to Zion and save the city from the machines. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But do you guys hear what I'm saying about like it being a sort of litmus test? Like that if you're cool with the movie just throwing all this stuff at you that you're not going to understand. Mm. I think that's hard for a lot of people. It is very hard. When I first watched it, I didn't like the movie. And like you, Abe, now it is my favorite. But only uh, after rewatching it and, you know, listening to podcasts about it and like reading more about it and like hearing what other people who loved it more than me had to say about it, did I start to uh, realize what was going on. And it helped a lot. I think it was... um, Maybe it wasn't blank check. David Sims, I think, had the whole thing of like that what all these en- encounters with the programs are, are like, it's kind of like how it's to uh, interact with a computer. Like, you know, when he said that Serif is basically like a login screen, that really, uh, you know, unlocked a bunch of things for me. And there's like, oh, mm. I think I kind of get it now. And then I rewatched it and I finally like was into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's incredibly dense and, and also... A lot of like very, um, you know, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Like thick, kind of like uh, complicated lines being thrown at each other. Like, mm-hmm. of you know, um, not exposition like we were saying, but just like ideas. Dense ideas. I mean, the dense Arctic scene. Dense, yeah. Yeah. The Arctic scene is famous for, I think, exactly that. I think people who don't like it are like, it's just a wall of text. Yeah. It, it definitely <laughs> bears repeat viewings. You have like I don't think you can possibly understand it the first time without slowing it down or rewinding. But I think that's also part of the design of it. It's meant to be a higher level conversation that you really need to sit forward and pay attention to. And if you if you don't, because at that point you're also watching an action sequence, you're watching all this popcorn movie stuff. So maybe the first time you see it, I, I mean, I certainly can confess to this. It does kind of wash over you. But mm-hmm. the more you dig into it, the more rewarding it is. The more you see like the little bits of detail and world building in there. And, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's well constructed. I couldn't agree more. The architect has a line early on in his scene with Neo that basically is directed at the audience where he says, though the process has altered your consciousness, you remain irrevocably, hu- irrevocably human. Ergo, some of my answers you will understand and some of them you will not. Beautiful. And it's like, yeah, man, like, <laughs> preach. I don't know what you're saying, but come on. And I love that his tactic, instead of arguing with Neo, because he's done this five times before, is just to play back Neo's five other reactions that he would have to everything he's saying, just to be like, listen, I, let's not do this five times. Let's, let's, let's have a new conversation, please. <laughs> yes. I love how current Neo is so much more chill than mm-hmm. his past selves. His past selves are always like, that's bullshit. And current yep. Neo is like, it's about choice. Yeah, he's been grounded by love. Yeah, <laughs> that's the difference, right? So actually, that was that's one of my big questions about this. Well, I have three hashtag uh, big three questions, but one of my main major questions is like, is is this the sixth version of Trinity? Is this the sixth version of Morpheus? Because I don't think it is with Trinity specifically. I think Trinity is unique, and and like is the is really the difference between like why it didn't work five times before, but now it does. It's I think she's the the what's the word i'm looking for like the the keystone or the mm-hmm. so if i understood correctly the scene with the architect i uh get that let's try to 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 understand what he's the dude saying right sure. so there's been plenty of versions of the matrix the original one was perfect in every way and humans because they we are imperfect rejected it and it was a disaster didn't work 
And then he started doing different versions based on what he had learned from human history. And eventually he realized that he needed the Oracle as another force to balance the matrix, right? Yes. And to make and it required a mind less bound by the parameters of perfection, which is such a arrogant thing to say. <laughs> so basically a program that's designed to um, cater to humans, right? To human, mm -hmm. to understanding humans, to catering to their imperfections. and they're designed to think like a human, mm -hmm. you know? Well, that too. Yeah, that's interesting based on, on what she does later. There's a sort of difference here, a distinction between computation and comprehension. Mm. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. That's a good, yeah, that's a great way to, to put it. Okay, so once the Oracle enters the picture, um, the reason for the Oracle is also to manage the anomalies, right? And the anomaly, this is something that wasn't clear to me. If when he talks about anomalies, he referring to Neo specifically, or he, he, I think he's referring to anyone who rejects the program, right? I think he's referring to the one. Oh, really? Okay. I think he's referring to, because he, he, I, I, I he kind of spells it out this way where he says the anomaly is systemic. Um, mm -hmm. It's the, it's an imperfection apparent in every human being. And he later defines that imperfection as hope. So I think he's talking about hope is the anomaly. But when he says that it's the sixth version of the matrix, the way he says it is, I prefer counting from like the emergence of an anomaly. And this is the oh, sixth version. The anomaly literally being the one that, yeah, I you're right. So. You're right. You're right. And so I took the systemic line to mean that like Neo's effect on like is system wide, you know, mm -hmm. that the system kind of starts to break down in Neo's presence, which I think is evidenced. So I don't want to get too much into the other movies, but given what what my interpretation of what happens in Matrix Resurrections is that the, that movie supposes that the idea of the one is more um, it's wider than we thought that that the one that Neo is not just the one by himself, but he, but his power also derives from his connection to Trinity. And to a degree, there's also the ability for other people to reach uh, that sort of enlightenment and, and those sorts of powers. So is that something that would be beyond the matrix's, um, how does it fit with what the architect is saying is what I'm, what I'm, what I'm asking now. And the best answer that can come up on the spot is that I can see it being the thing of like, the human there's something about the humans that is capable of of reaching the powers and the heights that neo reaches in these movies and um and in every iteration of the matrix there's like one person who gets to that level but most people don't and and recognizing that there is that possibility is what makes them rebooted and and started from scratch um and it isn't until resurrections that it is that we get to a point where it is realized that other people can get to there and that, you know, maybe because things are not being rebooted and, and destroyed every time, more people can be able to reach that level um, somehow. I don't know. I think you're right. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Lou. Uh, I was just going to ask, is there an eventuality that could lead to Smith being the one, even though he's a program? Yeah, I think, I mean we'd have to start talking about the matrix revolutions a little bit. <laughs> um, right. He's powerful enough, right? I think it's, it's more a matter of like, he doesn't have purpose, like you were saying. And he's I think aware enough, I think is, yes. sorry, go ahead. Well, I think it's a question of philosophy. I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's the one uh, implies oneness with the universe, with the world around you, with others. And I think 
getting at your point about Matrix Resurrections, Conrado, I think we all contain within us the capacity, the capacity for oneness with the system around us. And I think, you know, the matrix, uh, the architect says that, you know, given the design of the matrix, because of the Oracle solution to this problem, the solution being this idea of choice, this idea that if the choice exists, basically, mm-hmm. if the choice exists to live a lie versus live the truth, as long as that choice exists, we can accept the matrix that it's that system, the nature of that system that produces the one by the choice existing, the mm. capacity for someone transcending the boundaries of the matrix exists as well. And so I think in the main trilogy, we primarily see that in Neo, but I think even in Re- Reloaded and Revolutions, especially, and then obviously in Resurrections, I think Trinity is also another half of Neo in a way. Um, there are definitely two sides of the same coin. I fully agree with that. I feel like, uh, I think I said this on the last episode, like Neo is called the one several times in the series, but really he's the 0.5 and Trinity is the other 0.5. Which is interesting when she's called Trinity, you're like, oh, maybe there's a third piece there, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and more Morpheus biblical references, sort of, right? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I think one of my gripes with Revolutions is that it feels that Morpheus falls a little bit out of that Trinity in a way, but... He's yeah. kind of outlived his purpose by the third movie, I feel like. He's kind of, like, I don't know, if, if they've kind of threatened to kill him so many times that yeah. um, it feels like he needs to be the dramatic death, but that ends up being a red herring and he's not the dramatic death. Yeah. Totally. Sorry, Conrad, what were you going to say? Um, no, I was just going to say that, that he kind of takes um, a backseat. Um, and since we're going into your questions, Lou, I wanted to say that I, that I also have two questions of my own that I wanted to Ooh. ask, So so let me know. Um, when I should go into them um, as well. Sure. Before we get into my big three questions, let's talk about the robots. Um, AB, you haven't been on the show before, but I like to ask every guest, uh, in your definition, in your own words, what what is a robot? How would you define a robot? I would define a robot as a machine, meaning um, a... Uh, system that behaves autonomously um, on its own uh, in response to some sort of programming or in response to some sort of external control. Um, so like you can have a remote controlled robot um, mm. or you can also have like a, a robot that, you know, has some sort of artificial intelligence, but anything, any sort of uh, created manufactured um, being. So like the squiddies are easily robots. Definitely. That's very easy to call them a robot. Um, would you say like, is the Oracle a robot? Is, is the age, is, are the agents robots? You know, even though I haven't been on this show before, I had the sense that we would get to this question where we would be, we would be asking if programs in the matrix are robots. And I furthermore, think, yes. blue pills, are blue pills robots? Because they kind of fit the definition. Question. Hmm. It's funny. I often think of blue pills as like, le- almost more set dressing. <laughs> like, mm. um, but I think you're right. I think blue pills are robots. They're people. I mean, in the sort of punk mindset of the Wachowskis, I think blue pill blue pills are squares. They're people who are cogs in a machine, not questioning the greater functioning of that machine. Um, so I mean, I almost feel like they're not to sound so like elitist or anything, but I feel like blue pills are less than robots. Blue pills are just gears, you know. Mm, gears. That's a great. That's a great word. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to think of them as gears. They're they're part of the machinery, but they're not they're not the active thinkers of the machinery. They're not the 
they're not the motor of it. They're just part exactly. of the, what makes it go. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Cause the matrix itself is sort of a robot. It's this whole ecosystem, you know, I would, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Conrado, how do you feel? How do you feel about like the things in this movie? Um, mm-hmm. So the squiddies, I, I think it's, it'd be absurd to say that they're not robots, but what about the other things we're presented with in this film that, that are robot-like. Uh, <laughs> I've been at the show so many times that I feel like at this point, everything's a robot to me. <laughs> Every time I come, the definition expands. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Everything that's in the Matrix um, that is not a human that's been plugged into it, I would describe as a robot, potentially. Um, For me, yeah, it's the- easy to visualize like a program as a robot when we get to Matrix 4, and they're literally these like swirling collection mm. of ball bearings. And they, mm. you know, like like a Tron being a Tron program, like it's like they came out of the computer and manifested some sort of physical form. And I don't know, at that point, I'm like, is that a robot? Is well, <laughs> that meme of is, like the guy pointing to the butterfly? Is Bane, once he's controlled by Smith, a robot? Oh. <sighs> Man. Well, it's interesting because because we agree that robots can have um yeah, they can have like um, choice of their own, right, and a consciousness mm-hmm. of their own. So yeah, so I guess if Smith is a robot and he takes over, yeah, it's just like a, a like consciousness of a robot has taken over an organic body, but it's yes. still a robot, I guess. These are these are movies I think expressly designed to challenge these questions because I think one of my conclusions walk away, walking away from a movie like The Matrix Reloaded is saying, oh, it's not us versus programs. Because we're also programmed. We're programmed by our DNA, by evolution, by our nature. Bingo. Mm-hmm. It's, we're all robots. Yes, like we have choice, quote unquote. But it's like, you can't choose, I mean, I guess you can, but you can't really choose whether or not to eat, but you can choose what to eat. But your biological imperative dictates you must eat. If you want to continue moving forward, you must eat something. And exactly. you can choose hamburger or salad. You can choose you know, orange juice or water. Um, that's, that's, I think, where your choice sort of begins and ends. But they're on, a de- on the deepest level, we're programmed by our DNA, technically. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, we, we haven't really, we've talked about it in a sort of plot way, but I think I just want to like flag for me what is the most audacious thing about this movie, which is a movie filled with audacity. But I think the first Matrix for all of its mind-blowingness, is sort of a conventional hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And it's a really tight story. And I think a lot of people really love it and view it as the best movie for that reason. They're like, it's it's tight. and Every scene is so perfect and it just moves like clockwork. And this one does not feel that way at all. But I think in part because this movie exists to make something like the hero's journey more complicated and weighty. And so when we get to that scene with the architect, the mind-blowing moment of this movie for me both when I watched it the first time and every time I've watched it since is the revelation that Neo, that the hero is himself a tool of the system, Mm -hmm. a a product of the system of control and the idea of revolution, the idea of resistance to the systems of oppression is manufactured by those same systems. It's what they want. It's crazy. It's mind blowing. (laughs) But it's also very true, right? And I think that's something that anyone who as a young person wants to make a difference or like rebel in one way or another will encounter eventually the realization that the ways in which they are rebelling 
are also within have been accounted for within the system that the system is much more intelligent and self-perpetuating than you might have anticipated and in terms of choice as well you can rebel by doing something you know a graffiti or whatever but then of course the repercussions of that could be much greater uh, than you imagine or it could be completely inconsequential the system won't care it will be a rebellion that has no meaning or or effect neo getting to the art architect i just realized this is like luke very easily walking onto the second death star very easily finding the throne room and then palpatine revealing yeah i dude i knew you were going to come i wanted you to come here i wanted exactly. to, to make you uh make this choice and and take this litmus test and you know, see how you react. So my question, one of my questions is actually about that choice that Neo makes in that moment. Um, because I've, I've heard some people complain about the fact, I mean, he's presented with a choice that is very common to like superhero movies, right? Like, like mm. in Spider-Man, you know, it's like the Green Goblin has in one hand, it's Mary Jane and the other, it's the cable car with all the people in it. And Spider-Man, which one are you going to save? You know, and obviously Spider-Man tries to save both. In this movie, the, the architect tells Neo, okay, you've reached the end. This is what we do usually. We destroy Zion, <laughs> but we allow you to take like 23 friends, you know, 23 <laughs> and me. Yeah, and 16 <laughs> women, uh, seven men. Mm -hmm. And you can rebuild it for, for yourself. And so humanity won't destroy and we will all like keep doing this forever. Um, but you will be the savior in humanity in that humanity will exist even though a lot of people will die. At the same time, though, Trinity has gone into the Matrix and, it, and is in danger and is about to die. And Neo, all of a sudden, is presented with the idea that he can either strike this deal or he can save Trinity and he can't do both, right? Mm -hmm. And he decides to go for Trinity, um, seemingly dooming all of humanity in the process. Mm -hmm. um, how do we feel about that? Usually the hero tries to do both at the same time, right? But here he can't. Well, Lou, do you have something to say? No, go ahead. Go ahead. For sure. I think the beauty of the ending of this movie is the revelation that through Neo's love for Trinity, he is able to do both. Mm -hmm. And it's in that selfless, even though I guess it could be put as selfish because he's like, you know, purportedly dooming the human species. But I think it's a false dichotomy that the architect sets up saying this choice is between saving humanity and damning them to destruction uh, to save the person you love because he doesn't save Trinity. She dies. But Neo reaches inside her and pumps her heart, mm. which is crazy. And <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that's, it's not that, that Neo left to save Trinity. He left to be with Trinity. He left for love. And it's because of that love for others that humanity is ultimately saved as well. That, we can die, but we can actually return from death, which is a theme that repeats throughout the series. Yeah, I mean, it happens almost every single movie. There's some sort of resurrection in it, right? Absolutely. Yes, but like what I love is we get an example of, because I was really trying to rack my brain and think of, of one, we do get an example of a program that's willing, that shows humanity because it's willing to sacrifice itself to save the day, to like move forward. The key maker, when the he gets maker. shot, um, it's cause I, I was just thinking like, I can't imagine a machine making, I can't imagine agent Smith making that choice to sacrifice himself for someone he loves. Uh, but the key maker does that. Um, you know, like I couldn't imagine the Merovingian, for example, 
doing well, doing that, making that choice. Of course not. But speaking of that, the keymaker isn't he such a great character? I fucking I love the keymaker. He's so cool, and he's great, and he's and obviously fast. he outruns Trinity. He's very fast. Yeah. He <laughs> is, of course, a centerpiece in in what is the best, not only the best action sequence in this movie. The best action sequence is any Matrix movie, but maybe the best action sequence ever made, in, like, which, is, which is the highway sequence, which I think is yes. just incredible from beginning to end. Like, it's fantastic. Absolutely. And that's I something else. I don't even else. know if I have a counter argument for that. No, I can just support it. Yeah. I can just say, like, I'll I mean, co-sign defi- that. It's definitely up there, right, with some of the very best. And, of course, um, something that could only be done... I, uh, on this scale, after you have made one of the most successful movies of all time and given kind of like money to do whatever you want with the next one. And also at this point in time, I think because the level of practicality that was required to make that, you know, they built a gigantic highway in Mexico just to make this sequence that I don't feel like anyone would do nowadays, you know, especially when you mm-hmm. have like a green screen and computers and that kind of thing, you would go a different route. And then, but just the, the enormity of it is really, really incredible. And I was going to say something else about it. And I forgot. It invokes another action sequence that if you didn't name this one as the best, I would, it would probably be my argument, which is from Terminator Terminator 2. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely a lot of Terminator 2 vibes. What is it about freeways that make for such spectacular action sequences? It's the freeway. It's the truck. It's the huge, uh, powerful truck chasing down the the slim, cool, fast motorcycle. Um, and you get like all the different styles. It but is one, one of the really most up it. dangerous places in the whole world. It's yeah. a freeway. It's <laughs> like that's. I think yes. It's like gigantic bullets going at like you know tremendous speed from one side to the other. Um, it's the most one of the most dangerous places for a human who's not in a car to Especially be. Especially when you add in John Hamm jumping from like <laughs> <laughs> car to car. It's true, and it's you know I think it's also because it's a space that we all understand. Like it's not like mm. some you know uh, battlefield in space we've all never been to. It's like we've all spent a lot of time on freeways, Good so point. it's a very intimate danger. We know how fast it feels. We know how unpleasant it would be to be standing in the middle of a freeway. Yeah, and. It just feels dangerous. And also everything's moving so fast. But I love the way this movie sets up the freeway too. It like there are all these moments when Neo and Morpheus and Trinity are like driving to get onto the freeway mm-hmm. where, you know, Trinity says, Morpheus, you like you always told me to stay off the freeway. Mm-hmm. And Morpheus is like, well, then let us hope that I was wrong. Um, <laughs> and that is that is in in one way so simple, but also much more effective than you would expect. It's such a like an easy trick to be like, let's have the characters just before they get on this very dangerous situation, just say how dangerous it is. But mm-hmm. I always remembered it as being a thing that was throughout the movies or throughout the whole movie, then like saying again and again, no, not the freeway, not the freeway, and then eventually going. But it just happens once right before, but right it's before. so effective yeah. and the scene is so good that it makes it feel like it's a whole thing that's integral to the plot arguably that's the same way deja vu works in your brain Mm, interesting well i think it also works because you always told me to stay off the freeway is like something like my mom told me you Mm, know mm -hmm. it's like that's a piece of advice that we've all heard when you're first learning to drive that's definitely what i was told like you are not ready to go on the freeway yet you have to like build up to that Right. And if the Matrix is sort of all about taking these real systems of control and turning them into like hellish metaphors for oppression, then like what is the freeway other than this fast moving, like, you know, basically just 
experience of being on like a freight train Mm -hmm. that can't stop and it's like don't get on the freeway that there's no escape you'll just Mm -hmm. be in hell forever uh so you just feel it (laughs) it's so funny and it's great and i love that moment that little moment when um trinity is on top of the car that has all the motorcycles (laughs) and she's like i need to i need to figure out how to hijack a motorcycle i need i need to download the program and the key maker's like nah i got it i got your key right here that's great (laughs) yeah the key maker rules um, and what I was going to say actually was that um, this is one of the reasons I, why I love this movie the most. I, I agree with you, A.B. It is also my favorite, I think, of the Matrix movies. Mm. And um, a lot of it is because of all the, you know, complexities that we talked about in theme and plot and, and what it, you know, how it complicates the first movie. But also, I think the action, I would say, is even better Partially because they, um, something that I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of like gun action in movies, which the first movie has a lot of. And the climax is like that shootout at the, you know, lobby of the building. Whereas here they really minimize the guns and they kind of like in almost every action sequence, they get rid of the gun pretty fast. Like they run out of bullets or someone knocks it over. And then mm-hmm. it's like at the Merovingian's place, it's like all these crazy martial arts weapons, right? And everyone's like has a katana and a fucking a sword of some kind. A mace. And a mace, yeah. And it's incredible, right? And then there's the highway sequence, which is also, again, katanas and like, you know, uh, motorcycles and riding around, um, which I think makes it a little bit more physical and kinetic right it's not just like sh- a shot of someone shooting a gun and a shot of someone being hit it's more like uh you know the physicality of, of movement in the shot and in and in the frame that really makes it special for me it's also the that thing and this this might go back to like that d- debate about like whether the blue pills are robots the agents assimilating anybody they want to because they need to in that moment like the truck like all of everybody driving a car on that freeway at any point can just be assimilated by one of the agents and that is existentially terrifying (laughs) absolutely i I also totally agree about the guns in this movie i love how systematically this movie just like gets rid of the guns because it's almost Mm. always in iconic ways like in that scene you were talking about conrado you have the moment that i remember was really popular in the trailers for this movie of mm. Neo stopping all of the bullets. Yeah. Great. And just moment. Like what a, it's such a great moment and it's such an iconic visual effect too. And I think it's just burned in all of our memories, but then when guns do come into play, it feels even more iconic. Like when Morpheus finally kills the twins by slicing into the truck with the, or into their SUV with the Katana and then it rolls over and then, and then he pulls he out his Uzi and it yeah. shoots it and explodes. It's like, why, what a great gun moment. Why does that work? If they can, like, phase out of being a material thing, why does that kill them? Like, why? why? He just One, did it in such a cool way that exactly. they have to take the L. Rule of They're like, it's, you, know, you killed me in the is, coolest way possible, so is, I have to die. Is being in the Matrix like you're wearing a Green Lantern ring where it all comes down to willpower and, more importantly, imagination? Because a samurai sword cannot cut through an SUV and not make it flip over. But because Morpheus (laughs) thinks of it in that moment and really wants it to happen, it happens. So is it like, like it's a, it's like wearing a green lantern ring. I think, yeah, I think that's part of why everyone looks cool as shit in the matrix because like your self image, it's part of the punk mentality. Again, it's like, if you want to master the forces of the universe, you need to believe that you're cool enough to do so. And that means you need to strike poses and it needs you mean it needs like it, it means all these things uh, that do come down to like belief and willpower and, and coolness. And so I think, Conrado, you're actually right that like part of why that works 
is because it's awesome. Um, that is, I think, an interesting segue into Lou's big three questions about this movie. Um, because that is, that's one of, that's my first one that I wanted to ask you guys, actually. Um, so, A.B., this is just a section where I ask my big three questions that I wrote down while I was watching the movie. And Sweet. there's a little bit of theme music. Do, 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 lose big three with you and me. We're going to have fun with fucking lose big three. <laughs> All right. Lose big three. Number one. Uh, what did it, if you were had to, if you were hacking into the matrix and you were going to go like pull off some cool mission and you have to, you know, you have to elude the agents while you're in there. Would it make sense for you to dress up like a really cool leather daddy and have sunglasses and like look like one of the people that causes them trouble? Or why wouldn't you just like wear a boring normal suit and blend in? Mm hmm. It's a good question, but I think it, it, the answer, I mean, you know, you, you gave us a hint by going into this section right after we were talking about this, but I think it is like Amy was saying about the attitude, right? And I think it's been believing in yourself and it's kind of like wearing the superhero costume a little bit, right? Like, because, you know, something that I've experienced as an actor, for example, is that being in your costume really does make a difference. Or like, you know, when you're playing a part that requires makeup also, uh, I think A.B. knows this from the movie he directed. Uh, one of the characters has this crazy makeup. And, you know, when the actor got in the makeup, it was different for the actor, but also for the people around him. Everybody, like, saw him as this, like, weird monster. And we were all like, oh, shit, you know? So going into the Matrix dressed as fucking Trinity and, like, all leather, um, like, the person who's, like, one with a motorcycle, like we were saying before, is just fucking intimidating. And, and, and you're going to kick ass and nobody's going to stop you. I agree. I think yeah. it's also this desire, like the idea of waking yourself up to the reality of the lie that is the whole universe and then deciding to dress like everyone else feels so lame to me being like, oh, everyone's living a lie, but let me put on a suit and tie. Hell no. You know, <laughs> I love that. That's those. Those are really good answers. It's Conrado. Uh, uh, what you said made me think of something. Do you know, um, you know, the term touchstone? Like something is a touchstone. Do you know where that mm -hmm. comes from? No. Uh, it's a thing. I think I think it might have like originated in the time of Shakespeare, but it's a thing like actors would literally have some piece of like, usually it was like a button or some piece of clothing or something that their character would have had. Um, and it's, it's, it's something they like carry in their pocket or hold and they touch it uh, to be a physical reminder of a certain thing. Like it's, it's a way to activate um your memory by mm. having this physical thing to latch onto. so i totally mm. i totally agree like donning the costume putting on that stuff and knowing that that's what you look like and that you look like the resistance um that's definitely yeah that's gonna have a big psychological effect on the enemy so i that's and on a, that's yourself and on like yourself. you're saying yeah. and yeah. on yourself yeah your confidence level it's so true. Have either of you ever worn sunglasses inside or at night? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and only only for effect. Yeah. And how did you feel wearing them? Like like I was invisible. Like, and I <laughs> yes, know that doesn't yes. make sense, but I feel like I'm invisible when I'm wearing them. I absolutely agree. There was one time in my life where I was like at a club wearing sunglasses, and I've never <laughs> felt cooler in my life. I felt yeah. like I could do anything. Yep. It was really really liberating and invigorating. What about you, Conrado? No, I don't think I have, <laughs> but I might try it now. Yeah, yeah, you don't wear your sunglasses at night? No, not really. Um, well, let's go into uh, 
my lose big three number two if you were a cool hacker that wore cool leather outfits when you go into the uh, matrix what would your username be what would your like matrix name be Mm, that's a big big question that's a big question for this topic I wrote down a list of all of the like names of cool. What do we call? What do we? I guess red pills is what we call them, right? Of all the mm-hmm. red pills that we've seen in in the movies so far. If you want me to like give you some examples mm-hmm. to maybe kickstart um, your imaginations. Well, of course we know like Neo, Trinity, Morpheus. What else do we have? Bane. Ghost. that's the other thing like you can we know whether or not you're going to be someone who betrays everybody by your name because <laughs> when you're named like cypher bane or yep. some shit like that you know we know you're bad news mouse mouse is a cool name you know what my name would be because i love uh cactus i love cactus sis or cacti and i think cactus would be a cool um name and i would have one of those maces that have like spikes on them so it'd be like fucking cactus you know what i mean dope okay maybe well it's funny i feel like i love how many of the people in the matrix have names out of mythology and stuff and you know morpheus is like the god of dreams and i've always loved that name and love that influence and i feel like that really speaks to me personally too and so it's a shame that i can't also have morpheus Mm-hmm. Um, mm. but maybe like as a nod to that and just very much a ripoff, I would be Orpheus. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and cause Orpheus is someone who like goes into the underworld, um, and you know, like bewitches Hades with the power of song. Mm. Um, it makes sweet, sweet music. Exactly. Maybe like the DJ at the rave party. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I'm like at the end of the day, I'm a filmmaker. Like, I don't know that I actually believe that, you know, Art can change the world, but I do think, like the Wachowskis, art can wake people up, and I think Orpheus is someone who wakes people up with his music. So that's the that's the vibe. Awesome. I have uh, two answers, and I think they're both lame. But <laughs> one is just simply Kenobi. Um, it's just the first thing I thought of, and I feel like that's probably how it works in this world. Like it's whatever. Like you don't even you don't get to pick your name. It's just sort of like the first more forefront thought, um, it just happens and that becomes your name. Or maybe I'm wrong and you do get to pick your name. Um, the other one is just like a screen name that I use a lot because I got obsessed with The Expanse, uh, which is Belta, um, which is like the term for, we, I can't, I don't, we don't have the time for me to go <laughs> all the way into The Expanse, but it's the term for the people that were born and live in the outer rim um, and, and, and literally live in, in space, in the belt. Um, uh, but I, I think it'd be a cool name. That's cool. Belta. What about yeah, I mean, Balto? Like <laughs> the dog. Like the dog. Cool. Yeah, the heroic dog. For totally. I mean, I feel like any Star Wars like device could work. You know, you could be Saber or mm-hmm. Force or anything like that, you know? Yoda. 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 <laughs> or, or yogurt. Or Yaddle. <laughs> yeah. Um, lose big three, number three. Uh if you were Orpheus or if you were Conrado, what was yours? I'm sorry. Cactus. 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 How many Agent <laughs> Smiths do you think you could fight before you had to fly away? Mm, how many do we think Neo fights in that um, scene? I looked this up, and it's apparently 195, which, wow. by the way, 195 Agent Smiths is my, is my band name. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good band name. Um, how many could Cactus fight? Um, listen... Maybe infinite. Well, it's interesting because Neil has to. 
old clan. I mean, he's very spiky, you know? Uh, no, I'm, I'm thinking that Neo has to escape them. So um, that's an interesting thing. about, And that also speaks, I think, also to the movie's um, prickliness, not to get too much into cactus <laughs> stuff. But um, but another thing that I feel like people might be like, what the fuck is this movie? Is like he has this huge fight and then all of a sudden he just flies away and the fight's over. You know what I mean? Like nobody wins that fight really. Um, and it's True. such a weird uh, thing to have in the middle of the of the movie, except that you need an action sequence. So, um, yeah. And that's the other thing about Agent Smith that I keep trying to, to figure out. It's like he just replicates himself. He kind of swarms Neo with himself, like almost like he needs he needs him, right? He's like the one person that he can't, even though he tries at what point to turn Neo into him mm-hmm. uh, by sticking his hand in him. Yeah, he tries that with Morpheus, too. Yeah, I mean, the movie opens with Smith saving Neo and his cohort from the agents. He gives them, a, Smith gives them the warning that the, that the agents are coming. Oh, that's and true. That's true. So what's that about? He just wants to, like, commute with Neo somehow, right? Like, we, we, like I think, like, Smith is going through this really tough transition. I mean, this is, again, where also the trans allegories of the Matrix come into play. Um, but I think Smith right now is going through a pretty difficult transition, and Neo is someone with whom there's a sense of fellowship and understanding. And I think the first goal of Smith is just like, I got to talk to this guy. I got to like figure out what the hell is going on and what yeah. he did to me. Yeah, yeah. it's almost like he, Neo is the first trans person that he met. And then he realized, oh, I'm also trans, you know, and I, I need this person to talk to this person to figure out what's going on or something. Definitely. And I think that fight, part of why wow, it's inconclusive yeah. in a way is as both of these people, Neo and Smith, are waking up to the realities of the universe, they both develop powers, they both develop the ability to control the world around them. And so they're both kind of like becoming gods in a way. And that scene, I feel like, is so much more about the two of them developing their philosophies than it is about the two of them actually kind of fighting to the death. It's philosophy through fight. And that's why the fight scene can maybe be dramatically unsatisfying well there's also go ahead sorry sorry. i think i know what you were gonna say serve right before says like you don't really know someone until you fight them yep five minutes before that so yeah at first i I, because i've never thought about that 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 agent smith is the reason neo knows that the agents are coming and saves everybody he gives him that earpiece and that like you just spelled it out (laughs) i did not realize that at that point it's it's practical. It's just, he needs to stay alive so I can get answers from him because he's the only one with the answers. So I need to do whatever it takes to keep him alive. Then the second scene where they're fighting in the park, it's not, I don't get the sense that Agent Smith wants to kill him. He wants to assimilate with him to get those answers um, and have that conversation at that point. Absolutely. I think that it put, it makes that Seraph scene so pivotal as a result. It's setting us up to understand that that fight is about that communion that we were just mm-hmm. talking about. Man, wow! This and at the end not- of it, Neo's like, "Damn, leave me alone." <laughs> yeah, if you're, like, <laughs> like, you're shoot, too clingy. The yeah. article was talking about like the programs that control like birds and the weather and stuff in that scene, and it made me start thinking about when you go into the Matrix, do you have to be a human? Can you like, can I just be like a giraffe and see what that's like? Can I be a wolf? Can I be a bird? Well. Maybe. I mean, we get ghosts and werewolves and shit like that in this movie. So, um, Which are programs, though. Right. So, like, could you, as a red pill, could I be like, I want to do the eagle program. I want to fly around like an eagle. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, Neo flies around. So I think if you have that imagination, you can do whatever you put your mind to. Yeah, I think you probably could. One of my soft tricks series as a whole is I feel like we never really get to experience the full breadth of what it really means to understand that you live in a program. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you have like all of these force powers, but um, a close friend of mine who's much more knowledgeable about computers was saying, yeah, okay, you can like stop a bullet in midair or move it out of the way. But from the perspective of a computer, there's no difference between stopping a bullet and turning a bullet into a duck. So how can we never see that happen? You know. So that so when 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 uh, Neo is saving Trinity at the end, right? He reaches in, he scoops out the bullet. But I, I this is something I always struggle with anytime I think about the concept of the Matrix. When you you know, it's like you get shot in the Matrix, you die in real life because your brain is convinced that you were shot, and it shuts I guess shuts down those systems or whatever. But when Neo is is digging in there to pull it out, I'm reminded of that the quote from the first movie, there is no spoon. Technically, there is no bullet. And furthermore, there is no spleen that has been ruptured. So like Trinity in no by no means has to die, right? I, you, I would think at some point they would have figured out how to put up some sort of barrier where like mental barrier where even though you're plugged in, your brain doesn't kill you. But mm. is that just impossible yeah. or? I mean, it's hard. I mean, I think what the movie is saying is that it's hard to wake up to those levels, right? Only Neo has really been able to do some of these crazy things. And even he, by the logic that Amy was putting uh, forth, has only been able to be so creative, right? I mean, like, I guess it takes a lot of believing in yourself to like, you know, obviously jump from one building to another, like they do in the first movie, and then to be able to fly and then to be able to revive Trinity. So I think we're kind of like seeing him realize the full potential of everything that he can do mm. uh, one by one. And it's a, a huge moment of realizing what you're saying, Lou, of like, well, wait, this is a program. So I could technically revive her, right? Couldn't yeah. I? Let's try it. I think you're right. I think the answer is just that it's hard. I think if you think about it in the context of the real world, like, because again, we are governed by programming here as well. I can put out a, like a candle with my fingers and it'll hurt. And it doesn't have to hurt because I understand what's happening, but I can't override the pain sensors in my, in my nerves that are going, ow, you know, even yeah. though I understand them, I know what's going to happen. I know why it's going to happen. And I know that I'm not going to die and there's no reason, there's no need for me to feel pain. And yet I will anyway. Yeah. Or we could all be a, a Olympic athletes, but we're not because it's fucking hard. <laughs> is it, yeah, exactly. Is it the same thing or is the opposite of the Wiley e. Coyote doesn't fall until he looks down? Mm. It's related. It's definitely, um, there's a relation there, right? And we know the Wachowskis do love their Looney Tunes. Um, I mean, so. the Smith fight scene, I think, evidences that. Yeah. There's so many cartoony, like when he's hopping on the on top of the Smiths. There's a character named Bugs in the fourth one. Come exactly. on. <laughs> um, but there's a character named the Merovingian in this movie that I feel like we have not talked about enough. This is such a fun character. Uh, I think that's the kindest thing I can say about him. Uh, <laughs> um so, Conrado, you you want to be called the Merovingian, right? Le Mer- sorry, Le Merovingian. The Merovingian. Um, is do you have a like a hot take on this character? Um, I think that he is. I don't think I have a hot take. He's absolutely deranged. I do love when he mm. appears, especially in the fourth movie. I think he's one of my <laughs> oh. favorite parts because then he's like even more <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love the idea, and I think 
Yes, I, like Avi was saying, like minor things that I would like say about the movies that as a critique about this one, maybe Merovingian, uh, we get the impression that he's from an older Matrix that was much more spooky. He lives with these monsters. I think the monsters could have been a little more monstrous. Like mm-hmm. I would have loved to see like a, you know, monster mash type of situation going on there with like guys in like full on werewolf suits and like mm-hmm. maybe a gorilla suit in there. Why not? You love the gorilla suit. And then like... Um, vampires like Nosferatu some shit you know we see those two guards watching a vampire movie right and then they get shot with Mm -hmm. a silver bullet yeah they're all these like winks at it they're like oh these guys are vampires because who else keeps silver bullets in their gun you know Mm -hmm. it's like I I agree with you Conrado it'd be fun if if we're gonna go to this idea this awesome idea that older versions of the Matrix had vampires and werewolves and angels and shit let's just see them Yeah. yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that would have been great, and, and that's what I love about the the Merovingian as a concept. And then, of course, he is absolutely deranged, and um, and there's that very weird. Well, there's a scene with the cake that we mentioned before, but then there's that weird sequence where Monica Bellucci asks helps them out in order to you know, uh, scorn her husband, the Merovingian. Um, mm-hmm. But he asks for a kiss from Neo in return. What did we make of that? That's one of the other scenes that I uh, don't quite know what's going on there. This movie's horny. What's your yes. take, Abby? <laughs> I think there are a couple things. I think, you know, it's funny. I, I brought up Orpheus and, and Hades earlier. I think the Merovingian's wife's name is Persephone. Um, mm-hmm. And in Greek mythology, uh, Persephone is the um, is Hades' wife. He steals her from the world above and lets her go, uh, you know, every year. And that's why we have spring. Um, and, you know, he loves her so much, though, that he keeps her imprisoned in the underworld. And I think by virtue of the fact that the Merovingian's character's wife's name is Persephone. I think we are meant to view him as a sort of Hades uh, stand-in and view his whole cohort as the underworld. Mm-hmm. And I think if, and that's kind of the, the purpose of the exiles, right? These are programs that have escaped death. They're in this sort of liminal mm-hmm. space. They they can't really go out into the matrix at large because agents will hunt them down. But in the Merovingian's estate, they're safe. And I think with the cake, I think that's a blue pill. I don't think I think that woman is not a program. She's a person, right? I think so too. That was yeah. my take, yeah. Also, sorry if you guys hear my cat in the background. He's having his own experience. Um, oh, but it's deja vu. It, exactly. Um, but I think the woman with the cake is this moment of the Merovingian saying, "Look, people are also programs. They are also, you know, subject to the the programming that governs their desires and impulses and even their bodies." Um, and then I think Persephone is the other side to that coin where she says, but I'm a program and I also desire love, something mm-hmm. I once felt that now my husband views as this programming, as this construct. But once upon a time, we actually had feelings for one another. Mm. The Merovingian talks about um, how French is so great. And he says, uh, you know, it's like, especially for person, <laughs> nom de Dieu de putain, de bordel de mer, de salopère de canard, d'encruer de ta mère. Um, um, which I don't know, I don't know if it'll change the rating of this episode if I translate all of that, but it's essentially just a peppering of, it's a sampling of different words in French. It's basically like, God damn it, hell, junk, asshole, bastard, something about your mom. Um, <laughs> it's not a complete sentence is what I'm getting at. But uh-huh. he he likens the language to wiping your ass with silk. And that started making me wonder, why does a program poop? But then later on, he literally says, cause and effect, I drank too much wine, I have to piss. He's not, but he doesn't have human biology. So why does he poop and pee? 
This is a serious question, but like, why does the Merovingian poop and pee? It's a great question. <laughs> I mean, one of the weirdest things about the Matrix is that any of it looks like the way it looks at all, right? It's a virtual reality. It could look like anything. And the fact that everyone's decided to take the shape of people seems in part like what the architect's getting at earlier, where he says these earlier versions that were more idyllic or had more fantastic elements just didn't work. At the end of the day, humans wanted to live in the shit and piss. And I think as a result, the Merovingian is now in this world where he has to poop and pee. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, I think that's accurate because if you're going to have a world full of like blue pills who are like, you know, uh, content and willing to accept it, it has to be a pretty dull kind of like easy to accept, low kind of risk, low fantasy world, right? And then, Mm. yeah, and everything is catered to them, really, you know, that's why the Oracle exists. And that's kind of what the architect, like Avi was saying, is getting at that our top priority is for people to not wake up and to when they presented with the choice to not really think about it and just keep going yeah it's kind of like superman eating food just to blend in right like he doesn't he doesn't really need to but when he's clark kent if nobody ever saw him eating that would be weird and they'd start to notice that so yeah but there's also been the the point of like machines being closer to us than anticipated throughout the Matrix movies, I feel like. Mm. And and there's also, you know, the Merovingian is creating these cakes that make you have all these reactions and, and the machines, even the programs seem to have these feelings and these strong emotions. So there is something there that consciousness comes with that, that there is something that you cannot take away in order to be a conscious being. Well, the Merovingian, like we were talking about, everyone there is in exile. They're all programs who are supposed to be deleted and instead elected to, you know, run away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so in a way, these are all programs like Smith who have rejected the the system's um, assertion of their purpose for something Mm -hmm. else. What's Uh, his end goal? What's his what's what does he want? The Oracle says that he wants more power. Like he, she says, what well, he's a man with power and what do all men with power want more power? Um, so I think the Merovingian, yeah, I mean, he's collecting all these, he's keeping the key maker in a dungeon. He kind of just wants, I think he's just one of those people who wants to be the center of attention. You know what I mean? He wants, he knows the one is on his quest and he's like, I need to have the key makers because I need to meet the one. I had to, got to tell him about like how I wipe my ass with silk and like, you know, I got to make an impression. Like, you know, he's kind of like, it reminds me of like a French court kind of thing, right? Of like, you just mm-hmm. want to be close to the king. You want to be close mm. to what's important. You want to be one of the important people in the matrix, one of the powerful people. You just want to be present and be present in people's minds. I think like most people who are powerful, he's also just terrified of death. I think well, the Merovingian too, yeah. really wants to survive. And I think the exiles with him feel the same way. It's why he says over and over to Neo, I survived your predecessors and I will survive you, you know, like all that shit. And, and that's then, interesting that he yeah, talks about predecessors even before we are, it is revealed to us mm, that yes. there's been other the ones. That's a really good point. I, I'm sorry to jump to like the fourth movie again, but it reminds me of like his appearance in that movie. Um, we're seeing the manifest of something the architect says, which is there are levels of survival we are willing to accept. Mm. Um, he's done the calculations and like there's, you know, there, there's a certain level of loss that we're, that is acceptable uh, in order for us to ultimately win and, per, and, and continue on. And the Merovingian represents that when we see him 
not in any any of his fineries and he doesn't have his mansion and he's just lost his mind but he's continuing on he's yeah and that's what he's that's what he's screaming about in that scene he's like we used to live mm-hmm. in luxury we used to have art you know like all this stuff <laughs> oh god that's such a it uh i can't wait until we talk about that movie that might be my favorite matrix movie hot take um, i hear you I'll, i might have to justify that statement later on but we'll see um this There's is one, not a this oh is God. not a group of people who dislikes the Matrix sequels. <laughs> That's nah, a good definitely thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> if if this was, I'll be honest. If this was like me in my early like teen, like late teens and early twenties when I first saw the movie, I, it'd be a very different conversation. I didn't get it back then. I didn't get it. I didn't want to give it a second chance and watch it again. Um, and I like every time I've gone back to it, I'll be honest. Actually, Conrado, your you wrote an article about how the Matrix sequels are very underrated and that was like that was sort of planted the seed in my mind that maybe i need to revisit these and maybe i didn't give them a fair chance and i'm really glad that i did because i've i've come full 180 on them i think they're brilliant oh i'm glad to hear that i had a lot of fun writing. i wrote a series of articles for alternateending.com about like trilogies from around this time so i wrote about the matrix about star wars and lord of the rings and it was really uh fun to take a look at that stuff. So I'm glad that that made a, a difference for you, Lou. And I'm glad that it led you to like, you know, being taking the red pill and recognizing that the Matrix sequels are dope. Truly. And like AD was saying, it's a litmus test. And I, and I, feel, I feel like I don't mind admitting that when I was a teenager with, and, and an early 20s kid with like that, the ideas and ways of looking at the world that are natural to somebody that age, I, I think that's fine because now when I go back and rewatch these, it's it's a it reminds me that I've matured. Like my opinions have matured. The way I'm viewing and digesting this story and its messages and what I'm pulling out from it, I feel like not to pat myself on the back too much, but I feel like I'm more mature. And I think that's a good thing to to recognize that and be able to to see that. I agree. I, I would hate to encounter a movie now that I saw when I was 12 and find that I felt the exact same way. Yeah. I think that would reflect really poorly on me, honestly. <laughs> or on the movie. It could, it could also be like so bad that it's just simplistic. So it's also refreshing to know like the Wachowskis were way ahead of, of, of me at least. And I think ahead of their time. Yes. And I also just feel lucky that my sensibilities have matured kind of into their sensibilities in some ways, you mm-hmm. know, like there are these incredibly, earnest, expansive, visionary, psychedelic people. And I think that's like a place that I enjoy spending time. They, I can say confidently, like my, my take on every, cause I've seen probably their entire body of work at this point. I, I think I've seen every Wachowski movie, good or bad. And they love humanity for all mm-hmm. of its faults, for all of its beauty. They just love humanity and they're, they're willing to see it as a complete thing. You're absolutely right. I think the rave scene is actually a pivotal part of that too because it really reveals their predilection for like the club aesthetic and vibe and something that i think is again kind of audacious is they seem to have this real belief in dance music as its own pathway to transcendence Mm. you know you can kind of escape the self through partying through dance there's like oneness in the party you know the word trance is in there it's it's a genre of dance music yeah so they're they're really non-judgmental which is also really cool like they're like you can achieve oneness through meditation or through dance or through fighting whatever floats your boat. Well <laughs> yeah. Um, so on the subject of litmus tests, if you guys are willing to bear with me in this Please. in this kind of view of these movies, how do you feel about the fact that 
this movie one ends on a pretty significant cliffhanger and really doesn't complete its thematic arguments until matrix revolutions. And then honestly, kind of until matrix resurrections. Um, I, I see what you're saying at the same time. I do feel like the revelation at the architect's speech moment is big enough that it leaves me with a lot to think about. And that's what I really love about this movie that, you know, even though the story will continue, there is something really big to chew on. Um, maybe too much for some people, right? Like maybe there was too many ideas for some people to chew on. Um, but I, I, I think definitely, and maybe I think the fact that it doesn't conclude here, but in the next one was a disservice in that, in, in making people feel like, oh, the next movie will let me know, all the, will answer all these questions that I have right now. Whereas the mm. next movie doesn't really answer a lot of those questions. Those mm. questions you just have to answer on your own. And this third movie has its own shit that it wants to talk about. Um, and the pauses for you to think about, but maybe you didn't think about it because you were like, oh, well, clearly they will answer all of this um, and I don't have to do the work. I don't know, maybe I'm projecting a little bit into other people, but I think that could be a reaction. I I think I had this reaction when I first saw it and even with like looking back on it with a, with what I would argue is like clearer eyes and a more mature perspective. Um, I feel the same way about the ending that I think it's a weak ending. I think it's a... I think it too heavily relies on you knowing that there's a sequel. Literally at the end of the credits, the trailer for the next movie plays to reassure you um, if that was disappointing, if that didn't feel complete, don't worry. You don't have to wait very long for the conclusion to come. Um, but I, I think for that reason, it makes this not feel like a complete story. It's definitely a or one of part one of two um, in the sequels. So yeah, but it's, I mean, but it is a compelling cliffhanger, to be perfectly honest. If it was a thing where it was like an end of a TV episode and the next episode was coming next week or I, you know, I could watch it, I could binge it and watch it immediately, uh, I might not be as affected by it, but I do feel like it's a little bit of a weak ending. Yeah, I think I fall somewhere in between you guys. I think, kind of again, in the framing of this as a litmus test, I feel like I don't quite pass because I think the movie's asking you at the end to just have faith that like the the big questions it's posing, the big ideas it wants you to explore will be continued. Uh, and I do trust that, of course, but I think it's, it's actually in the little things where I feel that sort of discontinuity. Like when we first arrive in Zion in Matrix Reloaded, it's, first of all, it's our first time seeing Zion. The whole mm-hmm. first movie, we like hear about this city. And I always felt watching the first Matrix that it's going to be this like pretty small community. And one of the joys of Reloaded is this feeling of expansiveness when you see Zion. And they make an entire meal out of this scene of the Nebuchadnezzar arriving in Zion mm-hmm. and landing. It's like a whole sequence of like the docking sequence where you have this like crazy air traffic control in this like all white futuristic like whatever which by the way is a setting we never see again never we we don't see it in the final fight in the third movie um this is very bizarre but anyway my point is we see like the dock it's this big open you know huge wide shot of the dock which is the place where the pivotal battle in the third movie happens Mm -hmm. and it's so clear that the shot exists to be like here's an important place that will become very relevant later on. And watching the movie again last night, I was like, oh man, I totally forgot that this shot and the sequence is given so much, you know, meat. I think so in, in part because so much important shit will happen in the third movie. And that's where I feel that discontinuity a little bit. Hmm. If I can, I, can def- see that. I guess like switch teams for a second and defend the movie, 
that is, um, it's the first, it's been built up to since the first one. So I guess it also, maybe it, it comes around the other side because it's, it's leaning on the first movie, but mm-hmm. they talk about Zion so much. Um, they describe in the first movie how the world, I think the, the words Morpheus uses in this film and his big speech is like from red clay to black sky. Oh, and in the so first cool. movie, he like really defines what that means and how, you know, yes. it talks about the history of how we scorch the sky the earth is a death, desolate wasteland. We live underneath it now. So back going back to like transitions, that this is the first time we're seeing that transition from the world of the machines that they have conquered into that tunnel. And we've seen that tunnel many times. We've seen Squiddies chasing them through those tunnels. But this is the first time we've seen them go through a tunnel and end up at that gate. The gate opens and it's a portal to that. It's a transition to the human side of things. Absolutely. And just to be clear, like, I love that sequence. I think Mm -hmm. it's absolutely awesome. And I love whenever anyone makes a meal out of something as simple as like a ship landing. I think it's such a great way to sell the scale and scope. I think it's really just realizing that, oh, wow, part of why they're showing me this is because it's going to be relevant in the next movie. And by the time I see the next movie, there's no way I'm going to remember that they even did that. Yeah, that's mm. very fair. I feel Unless a you watch bit, them back to back, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I feel a little bit that way about the very, very last moments of the movie, the last cliffhanger with showing the guy that is like Agent Smith has Bane, been yeah. Bane. Bane yeah, showing Bane. I kind of like had forgotten who the fuck that was by the end. So I was like, wait, yep. who's this guy? I get that it's important because yeah. the music like plays mysteriously, but... Because um, all the Bane stuff happens in like the first 40 minutes of the movie. And yeah, then... and he's such a character that doesn't really make much of an impression uh, to me at least, so... Good performance though, because it's like a guy playing Hugo Weaving playing him, yes. you know? He does a great job. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. Uh when I, I've always wondered when we see Bane, the first time we see Bane where we know Smith is inhabiting him, he's like cutting his skin mm. open. What do you guys think the reason for that is? Such a I good question. Thought. Yeah. Oh, you can go first. Cause I, I, I wondered that, but I didn't come to an answer. So if you have, if you have something, Conrado, please go first. Actually, I don't. I, I also can't, I'm coming up a little bit empty there. Okay. Um, well, I watched my, my partner, Adriana, we had two differing thoughts. Uh, she thought that it was the it was Bane himself, like stuck in his body, trying to just like get out. Being um, like, oh my god, I got to, like this guy is consuming me. I gotta like get out. Wild. I thought, which I thought was crazy, <laughs> really upsetting. I thought um, it was Smith being so kind of overcome with having a body that he was yeah. just like seeing how it worked. You know, mm, this like, is a new sensation. Yeah, like, oh, look at this. I me, cut my hand open and it bleeds. Weird, you know? Yes, yeah. which would go back to explain why the Merovingian is obsessed with, like, food and fine wine and, and, the, and the sensation of pooping and wiping your butt with silk. Yes, yeah. and then, and also, of course, in... Oh, go ahead, Corrado. I think I was going to say maybe what you were going to say in that scene. Uh, Neo gets cut and he says he's only human. Look, he bleeds, um, mm. the Merovingian. So there's, like, a thing with the hand and the bleeding that it's kind of, like definition of humanity somehow Mm -hmm. and in revolutions when neo and bane fight outside of the matrix bane does talk a bunch about how like he's encased in meat or whatever he seems to dislike having a body if you're plugged into the matrix and you poop in the matrix do you poop in your little computer chair that you're plugged into maybe i feel like they must have figured something i don't think so because because it's not like you're eating food in the real world, you know? 
Mm-hmm. It's like there's no matter that needs to be pooped. <laughs> well, if you're a blue pill, definitely you're not pooping, right? Yeah. Or, or, or maybe you are into a tube or something that the yeah. machines are taking. I mean, if you live your life in like an amniotic sack, like, do you even poop? Yeah. And they, and they show the food that they're eating on the ships in the first movie. And it's just basically like protein porridge, right? It's just yeah. like this. Yeah. Cool. It's probably, it's it probably actually doesn't not to be too gross, but it probably doesn't make very much, um, biological waste for you. Yeah, everyone got very loose, loose stools, you know? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had another like random thing about when the ghosts, um, there's a moment where they, one of them tries to phase through the car and they show him like slicing at Trinity's neck with the straight razor and then ending up on the other side of the car. Why doesn't that work? It seems like that would work because they can seem to have, they seem to have control over like phasing in and out of material space. Yes, I noticed that too this time actually, and, and I didn't. I don't think I'd ever noticed it before. I thought Trinity's move there, where she's like, "I'm going to drive so fast at this guy that if he were to phase inside the car, he'd get you know torn apart. He'd have to time it so perfectly that I'm not going to give him enough of a window." I, exactly. Yeah, that makes which sense. which is such a Trinity move too to be like, "I'm going to give him the opening just to get past him." Mm. She's so mm. badass. Um. Oh, another question that I had when, when they're, when they're describing their plan and they do that cool heist movie thing where they're like one person's telling the plan and then they're showing scenes of the plan happening, uh, which is very effective storytelling. Um, they're talking about how they have to take out this power station in order to shut down not one block, but 27 blocks in order to get to this, this building that the source is in. Um, so in real, in the matrix, a power station, like an electrical power plant, if they're blowing that up, are they effectively, are they like taking out the minds of hundreds, maybe thousands of blue pills? Are they kill, Are they killing and sacrificing a bunch of people in order to pull this mission off? I don't think so. I think the way that the matrix works, like the, the, the energy that they're harboring from humans is used to power the matrix in general and to power machines in the real world. But I think okay. that the, all the electricity within the matrix is kind of fake. It's it's all you know, or no? You know, I yeah. I disagree because um, I just looked it up. It brings me back to a quote from the first movie uh, when Morpheus is teaching Neo about the matrix in the red dress program. Mm-hmm. Um, he says uh, the matrix is a system, Neo. The system is our enemy. But when you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy. And I think that they have given themselves license to kill blue pills. It's something we we struggled with in the first movie. Conrado and I talked about that scene where they enter and the the metal detector and then they're like shooting up the lobby. Um, It's it's a little, it's a harder to watch that scene uh, with, you know, 20, 20 something years of school shootings and mass shootings mm. behind us. And, um, and, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think one of the Wachowski's more kind of anarchic perspectives is this idea that like people who aren't ready to be unplugged, people who aren't ready to wake up are so dependent on the system. It's what Morpheus says, you know, they're so hopelessly dependent on the system that I think we have no choice. Like they will fight us. And so we have to treat them like the enemy. 
it's it's maybe a bit of a cop out. Maybe they should try a little harder to wake people up. But at the same time, like, look, I've met some bootlickers in my life. There are some people who just want to like there, there will always be people that benefit from the system and want to keep it running. Yeah, exactly. There's also people who don't benefit from the system, but for some reason want to still keep it running. Well, said. Sure. Absolutely. well said. Yeah. Well, people, some people like being cogs in a machine. Yeah, True. what did you call them earlier? Gears, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Life's easier if you don't have free will, you know? Maybe. That's true. But it's still, it's a, I guess a litmus test. Like, it makes me struggle with, like, is blowing up this power station justified if it kills? Like, what's the maximum number of people that it would, that like an action like that or breaking into the lobby to save Morpheus, what's the max, what's the cap on how many people is it, is it, is it too much? And like, we can't justify our decisions, our mission anymore. You know, it's a great question. And I actually think, like, I don't like how many people they kill. <laughs> I don't like how many real people they kill. It's not an attractive quality about our heroes in the, these movies. And I actually think it's part of um, how we break down this binary of, of humans and machines. It's not about humans versus programs or humans versus machines. It's about people who are against, you know, oppression it's a, 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 you know victims versus oppressors um systems of control against those who seek to escape those systems and i don't know that it actually answers your question but it reframes the battle you know yeah i don't i don't know if there is supposed to be an answer i think it's something you're supposed to struggle with a little bit yeah and wrestle with definitely i mean everyone in this movie has a pretty like genial willingness to shed blood yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a warrior culture, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. It really is. Yeah. Um, I I don't think I have any questions about the movie anymore. I just have my bonus questions. But um, if y'all have anything else that we might have missed, or anything else that you want to talk about, or questions about the movie, um, let's get those in. This last one thing that I wanted to ask about, which is when they're going on the mission. Uh, someone runs up to Neo and I think it's the kid and tells him, Neo, one of the orphans sends you this and it's a spoon. Yeah. yeah. What do we make out of that? What do we, what do we think is going on in that moment? Uh, because we talked a little bit about the spoon when we talked about the first movie, Lou, and the idea of there being other candidates to be the one and what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I think we posited the theory that maybe the, there were fakes that the Oracle just put them in the lobby to mess with Neo or to manipulate Neo into, you know, you know, to like have doubt in him that maybe he's not, you know, there's other people who it could be instead of me. So um, I don't know. Do you guys have a read on this spoon? I have a theory, but I'd love for AB to go first. Oh, sure. Um, I kind of took it, for face value, I assumed that the kid who presented Neo with a spoon was a real child and was, you know, uh, woken up and brought to Zion. And because he's like a little kid, mm-hmm. he can't really fight or serve on a crew or anything like that. But he's this like spiritual kid who understands the nature of reality. And I think just wanted to communicate to Neo that like, hey, I see you. And here's a little token of our uh, important interaction. That's yeah, because he was inevitably in that scene in the first movie about to go talk to the Oracle. Mm-hmm. So whatever she told him might have led to him eventually waking up and ending up in Zion. And yeah, um, my theory is there's probably a version of this of the script for for Matrix Reloaded where Kid 
was the, um, literally the kid from the first movie. And then mm. maybe along the way when they made the Animatrix and they defined his backstory, that changed. Or maybe they like did the math and realized not enough time has passed for him to be old enough. Um, but I feel like that's what it is, is that like it was a version of the script and what was what remained, what was left behind is him being the one to deliver the spoon to mm. Neo mm-hmm. instead of being the kid. And what do we make of the significance of the spoon? That's the other thing that I was wondering because it felt like mm. a loaded moment that the movie wanted me to take some to do a little bit of interpretation of what it means for him to receive a spoon at this time. In the first movie, the whole thing is like, you need to to know there is no spoon, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like what keys us into how much Neo and the other people who have been woken up could potentially bend the reality of the Matrix to their will. So by giving him a spoon, are they saying like, remember what you can do, what you're capable of? Like, that kind of a thing. I think that's part of it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna look for a screenshot. Um, I'm gonna post this in the show notes if I find a screenshot of the spoon from the second movie and compare it with the first one because I think there's another layer to it where that spoon in the first movie it wasn't real and it was perfect and it was shiny mm-hmm. and he was able to bend it and whatever. When he the one that he gives to Neo. It's like it has dents in it. It's very rough. Yeah, it's it looks very, like something it's he like hammered together. Zion. It's real, um, yeah. and I think that's a layer of it. That yeah, I think that is a layer of it, and I think an even deeper layer is that at the end of this movie, remember Neo is able to enact his will to shape reality, bend reality outside of the Matrix. He shuts down mm. the Sentinel. That's true, mm-hmm. and that's I think true. the existence of the spoon in this moment is sort of a signpost saying that. The same rules that apply in the Matrix, this, this ability to kind of understand the laws that govern our reality, the realization that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. And the more we wake ourselves up to that oneness, the more control we have over our actions and, our, and the world around us applies here as well. That's a great point. And I totally forgot that I wanted to mention that because that's a huge deal that Neo is able to do crazy shit outside of the Matrix. And and I think that ties it up together really well, actually, A.B., the idea that what you are capable of doing in the Matrix is not just because it's a program. There's there's more there, that you're, you're capable of more in the real world as well. Like the waking up um, is allowing you to do things and to rage against the machine, as it were, not only inside the Matrix, inside of their terms, but outside as well, in, on absolutely. your own terms, right, maybe? I think you're absolutely right. Can either of you explain, like, why is Neo able to do that in that moment? If he doesn't have access to the source code, if he's not in the Matrix and plugged in, how is he able to do that? That's a, that was my big question as well. And, and I, my only answer is that it means that he is uh, powerful in a way that it's beyond the, the, the Matrix's control. I also think, like, the, any human that's been plugged into the Matrix is not has code in them you know neo uh, the architect says to neo the process has altered your consciousness you know i think there's some degree of like the one that is a program and i think neo is not strictly speaking human in the same way that none of us are right we all have our programming that's something we've been talking about this whole time and i think that applies in the real world as well and I just realized he also, uh, Smith calls this out. He does a handshake peer-to-peer um, uh, protocol with 
one of the programs from that was designed by the matrix. And Smith says like a piece of you got into me and a piece of me got into you. Yes. Mm. So yeah, that might be why he has that connection and is able to do that. Yeah. There's all this like digital to analog conversion going on, you know, like once you come into the real world, like, yeah, it's not like green symbols anymore. It's not green glyphs. It's like blood and cells and so, stuff. So it's Neo a robot or at least a cyborg of some sort at this point. Hell yeah. <laughs> I would argue yes, but I'm, you know me, I'm robot happy. I'll call anything a robot. Yeah. I think, am I, yeah. Am I, yeah. Am I setting you up for one of your bonus questions, Lou, with that? You might be, you might be. Um, what do you mean? Well, I think if Neo is a robot, then this is, movie is definitely a plus in the robots column of oh, yes. robots versus dinosaurs. Yes, but I, you know what, I, mm, but well, for me, even the squiddies are so like cool, so such a cool design that mm. I would give them a plus one. But again, I have a very strong pro robot bias. Well, um, <laughs> interesting dinosaur question. Oh, Given yes. that the world of the Matrix seems to be set in like the '90s and stuff, for I, I don't know if this is exactly the question you're thinking, Lou, but are there dinosaur fossils in the Matrix? I've wondered this before. I have wondered this. Are so yes. Are 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 there real dinosaur fossils, or is it um, were they put there by the machines to test to test our faith? Right. Like, <laughs> is the world of the Matrix a simulation where dinosaurs did exist millions of years ago and evolution happened according to some algorithm, whatever? Or was it all just like, boop? It's the '90s and fossils are there. No, I think you have the history there because he refers the the architect plays for Neo. Uh, like Hitler appears in the computer, you know what I mean? He's <laughs> right. like, he's yeah. like showing all these things about history in a way that is like, this is what happened in IRL, but also this is what we're using as our, ba as the basis for our program. Mm -hmm. um, also, I really love the fact that you very briefly see George W. Bush in the scenes <laughs> yes. because this movie came out in 2003 and that's like just fucking rad, like punk attitude mm. to be like, fuck Bush and put him in the, <laughs> in the TV. Um, the thing is, they I mean, they talk about aliens, ghosts, angels, vampires, werewolves. Those are things that, like, there used to be all these stories about, you know, like, a lot of cultures have stories where they literally think these things are real. It's part of their culture. It's part of their history. Um, the Matrix explains that as, well, yeah, sure, witches, vampires, you know, whatever. That's, that is all real. That's, but, but those were all things that we had to take out of the Matrix um, because it wasn't working. And now those are just sort of like trace memories that people think they exist, but they're just mythology. Um, so I wonder, I don't know if that applies to dinosaurs or not, but it definitely could. They're this larger than life thing that seems like it's, it's impossible for them to ever have existed because they can't exist, uh, co co coexist with humans. Um, so yeah, that, maybe that's such a good question. And I don't, I don't have an answer, but it's, I think it's a great <laughs> question. Well, it's funny because one of the fun things about the Animatrix is we get to like spend time with more blue pills with normal people who just live in the world of the Matrix. Mm -hmm. And we kind of see what it, we, I, I feel like one of my favorite parts of the Animatrix is getting to feel what it's like to live in the Matrix. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are archaeologists in the Matrix. Go on. I mean, just there, are, it's just the world, you know, it's like, it's our, the whole point is it's our world, right? Like the reason it was set in 1999 when the movie came out 
is because the implication was like, it's not some other world that's fake. It's your world, you and the audience, you're living in a fake reality, wake up. Mm -hmm. And so I think like our world has archaeologists, so why wouldn't the Matrix? So these archaeologists in the Matrix are just like, oof, I feel sad for them because they're not even digging real bones. (laughs) It's a real bummer, yeah. What are they discovering? What are they actually... Any they're only finding things that were left there to yeah, find wow. by the machines. Right? Toronto, you're so right. Any well, scientist sorry, in the Matrix is just like fucking <laughs> going through the motions of what the machines want them to discover or think, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, it's brutal. like being, it's like, uh, I don't know if this analogy works for everybody, but it's like being a DM for Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. Like, you know the ending, you know all of the possible outcomes, and you're just sort of watching. You've put them behind doors to reveal them at the right moment. And you're just watching the players, the, the scientists, work to discover them. Yeah, only so, the scientists don't know that they're playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, they right. think it's real life. It makes you think that like physicists in the Matrix would figure it out pretty quick. Because like if the machines oh. simulation, you know, if the Matrix is like simulating the laws of physics only to our best understanding, then wouldn't they like reach a point where they're like, wait a minute, like... Maybe a lot of the people who wake up are scientists. That's why they are able to build ships and all that stuff. That's you a know? good point. Good point. Man, yeah, being yeah. a physicist would be the, like, and then your world being revealed to you, that would be the trippiest experience. For sure. Yeah, because if you're, like, an artist, you're like, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> yeah, I've thought about this. I've want, You know, I've, I've considered this. But if you're, like, I, I know how the real physical world works. I study the blueprints of it. And then Morpheus shows what up one day and is like, no, here you're close, but here's how it actually works. Right. And then he slices an SUV with his katana and blows it up with an Uzi. <laughs> yep. And you're just driving in your little hatchback on the freeway and you're like, fuck. <laughs> oh my God. I wish I wish the movie had a little more time for like one person on the freeway who sees this and is just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Yeah, there's um, there's some cool stories in the Animatrix. Like, there's that runner that mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. he sort of achieves awareness because he breaks the world speed record, mm-hmm. and it's through training his quote unquote physical body, uh, you know, diet and exercise and and, and commitment to running um, makes him so fast that he's able to achieve this sort of runner's high where he sees the Matrix, and because he does that, the machines. Uh, interfere and they stop him and they cripple him. Yeah. Um, are there that any other so cool. examples? He like of... runs out of the Matrix. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe are there are there other examples in the Animatrix you can think of of like well, where we see the my favorite short. My favorite short in the Animatrix. Let me just look it up real quick to remember what it's called. Is um, it the noir one, the detective one? That one's really great. But my favorite is um oh it's it's called uh um Beyond. It's about this like girl looking for her cat. <gasps> Yo. And it's so great because it's it's exactly what I was just talking about. It's kind of just this vibe, this experience of like getting to live in the world of the Matrix. And it's about mm-hmm. these kids who discover what they call a haunted house. It's an experience like similar to a lot of experiences we have as kids. We're like, oh, that house is kind of weird and creepy. But mm-hmm. in this short, all these kids have this haunted house in the neighborhood. And it's where like the laws of physics don't quite work. All these mm-hmm. kind of glitches happen. And none of them react by saying like, oh, shit, our reality is fake. They're all just like, look, if you jump off this, you'll float, you know? And it's just such a joyous experience of like finding something magical. And then eventually, you know, the agents show up and shut it down and reset the glitch. Um, And then 
the magic is gone. And mm-hmm. it's almost like this experience of gentrification. I don't know. It's a really beautiful short. Oh, wow. That's a really, that's a really good analogy. I'd never, I never looked at it through that lens, but I, I'm probably going to go back and rewatch that one again, because that is a, it's such a good example. It's such a, Conrado, have you seen that, that episode, is episode that short uh, from the Animatrix? I mean, I've only ever seen the Animatrix once uh, back when the movies were first coming out. So, but I, now I really want to. So I, I think I'm going to commit to before doing Revolutions, I'm going to watch the Animatrix for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think they're all, it's a mix of things, but that one's really special to me, honestly. That is, that is one of the better, better ones. But yeah, the, the, man, the looking at it through the lens of like gentrification, cause it's this, it's this part of town that exists and there's this thing going on that, that can't be defined by everything else surrounding it. And the machines are only concerned with conformity mm-hmm. and efficiency and so when they when something like that emerges and people discover it, they have to quiet it. They have to shut it down immediately. Um, man, that's such a great way to look at it. Yeah, because this wasn't even it wasn't something threatening the Matrix. Like people were just having fun. Yep. Yeah, and they just they they took it so many steps ahead of like, well, inevitably this could lead to them asking the wrong questions and then becoming right. aware, and we have to stamp that out immediately. Exactly. Um, just cold hard logic. Awesome. Um, I have two bonus questions, but I, but if you all have anything else to say, I want to give you a chance to wrap up your thoughts about the Matrix before we move on to those. The Matrix only Reloaded, that, sorry. Only that The Matrix Reloaded is uh, an amazing movie. It's incredible. If you don't like it or never liked it before, I encourage you to give it another try. Maybe if you've been listening to us for this long, then you maybe, I hope, if you're willing to give it another try with all I agree. this shit that we've been talking about. Mm. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, it, it really is my favorite Matrix movie in part because of how big it is. It just opens the world of the Matrix up so much and makes me think about so many interesting things. And I feel like at the time, I bet people wondered if the Matrix movies would open up this you know, can of like pop philosophical blockbusters. But Ultimately, I feel like there never really were many more beyond the Matrix movies. So it feels not only like a great movie, but also like a time capsule of this moment when really big, ambitious filmmaking was allowed to happen in incredibly idiosyncratic ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well said. There weren't really, um, other than Matrix 4, Matrix movies after this, but I would argue there were many, many um matrix like movies because mm. of of these sequels yeah Ma- matrix like movies i think a lot of the time in kind of style and maybe some of the of the thematics but i think what ab is trying to get at which i agree uh, is not that many movies that took risks like this movie does in terms of challenging the audience going in unexpected maybe you know unpleasant directions or or things that are seemingly unsatisfying in first viewing that you need to rewatch in order to get um yeah so i would i would agree with that awesome um so i've got two bonus questions uh i promise i'll get y'all out of here by five they're they're pretty short quick questions um and then i'll make sure that we have some time to talk about um wormholes and uh and your projects ab So my two bonus questions. Uh, A.B. Conrado, this is a section of Robots versus Dinosaurs that we call, What's Your Snack? A.B. Conrado, what's your snack? 
Uh, did you, when you watched this, The Matrix Reloaded for the most recent time, did you um, enjoy a movie snack while watching it? And part B of the question, um, do you have a favorite snack when you go to the movie theater? Mm-hmm. Who wants to go first? I um, I don't know if you would count this a movie snack because it's you can't get this at the movie theater unless you sneak it in, which is what I ate last night watching Matrix Reloaded is McDonald's fries, which I hadn't <laughs> had in a while. Uh, and it hit the spot. It was great to, and I also had a seltzer. Um, I was feeling I was feeling good about my life last night. <laughs> nice. You know, Baby. I uh, I'm a huge snob when it comes to sour candy. Um, I have like kind of annoyingly, uh, high end sour candy tastes. There's this Swedish candy store called soccer bit. Um, they had a storefront in Manhattan, but it closed during the pandemic, but now you can order their stuff online. And, um, for my birthday, uh, my partner got me some soccer bit. So I was eating some Swedish sour candy, uh, during the movie last night. And that's definitely my favorite movie snack some sour candy oh my god i'm on their website right now i'm gonna i'm gonna put a link on the show notes oh hell yeah yeah support soccer with everybody (laughs) you're speaking my language any specific flavors that you'd recommend yeah Yeah, yeah. so i actually ordered some more today because i was just like i love having this stuff around it's really great um so they don't have them right now but they ordinarily have these pink raspberry skulls that uh, it's it's very swedish like everything's like skull shaped um (laughs) but uh these pink raspberry skulls are really delicious they have these um sour octopuses or something uh right now that i think are delectable um their sour cherries are very good a lot of the non-sour stuff is great too but you can also get they sell like mixes you can get like a sour mix Mm. um also if you're a vegan and you don't eat gelatin you can they has they sell like vegan mixes um so it's you know it, it might be a little more money than you're used to spending on candy, but it's all natural flavors. I don't know why I'm like doing an ad for Soccerbit, but it's great. <laughs> no, listen, if Soccerbit wants to sponsor Robots versus Dinosaurs, mm-hmm. I will absolutely advertise for them. This look, this I'm gonna I'm about to spend way too much money on this candy. <laughs> I'm really glad you Lou, told me just, about this. I hope you know that no matter how much you spend, I've probably in my life spent more money on candy. Um, well, AB, I'm gonna tell you my snack, and because you shared you you just opened up a whole new world to me. And I hope that um, this is something that you'll find joy in. Daryl Lee Australian licorice. That's my go-to snack. If you've never tried Australian licorice, you've got to. Uh, They do make the black licorice if that's what you're into. Um, But but I like their, they have like a mango licorice and a strawberry uh, and green apple. And it is the best licorice I've ever tasted. So if you haven't tried Daryl Lee Australian licorice, I highly recommend that to you. I'm going to put a link to Soccer Bit in the show notes, though. <laughs> and I, I, pr- I guarantee you on a future episode of Robots vs. Dinosaurs, I will have tried it and I will have a more informed opinion about it. But holy cow, this website. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm like, I'm like the Oracle. I love candy. I love candy. I mean, <laughs> truly, man. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. You know why that line works? It's be- it, God, uh, it's... Gloria Foster, she's delivering every line in that scene with like, yeah, I'm serious about this. Like, this is this crazy thing we're talking about, but I'm serious about it. And and I know that it sounds weird and it sounds crazy. But then like, she doesn't put too much pretension or importance on it. And then the only line where she really goes big is when Neo is like, why are you here? And she goes, same reason, 
I love candy. I love candy. She just puts so much on it and that's that balances everything else out. If she was yeah. doing that in every line, it, it would be too much. But oh god. But you really hit at the at what makes her performance so great, which is I think she is constantly she's the most pretentious character in this whole movie you know the oracle you're in the first movie especially you're expecting to meet this like sage that is gonna be like i don't know fucking gondolf or something and then it's yeah. it's some lady who's baking cookies and she's like hey what's up how you doing you know and I'm, she's so casual about everything she sells it so well the way they build her up i'm expecting like gaia from captain yeah. planet yeah mm. yeah totally or totally. what's her name from uh the, I'm, I'm so mad mad at myself i can't think of her name from lord of the rings galadriel, galadriel, galadriel yeah exactly and I think the fact that the mysteries of the universe are contained within our love of candy is actually mm. quite profound, you know? And the that most, it's a red, yes. a little red And the most basically. human thing about us is that, like, at the end of the day, we, we are programs. Like, we do love candy. Mm. And that's beautiful. And, like, it's, it's, it's just another expression of love. Uh, <laughs> and maybe it's all this talk about soccer bit, but I do love candy. And <laughs> it's through that love of candy that I can experience love for my fellow man. Well said. <laughs> Bonus question number two. A.D. Conrado, if we were to replace any two characters in The Matrix Reloaded with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, in what ways would that improve the film? And which characters, right? Yeah. Which char- yes, which characters, of course, and, and in what ways would that improve The Matrix Reloaded? I think Bane should be recast uh, with Danny DeVito um, mm-hmm. because I want to see Smith, like have to deal with becoming human in Danny DeVito's body. Correct answer. Totally. Yep. That's a great answer on, on many levels. There's that. I would love to see Danny DeVito play himself playing Hugo Weaving. <laughs> yes. and, I, and I think the, the cliffhanger at the end would be more memorable because everybody knows Danny DeVito. So I wouldn't yes. be like, who's this guy? I'd be like, yes. oh, fuck, it's Danny DeVito. Yup, you'd never lose track of the character when he's like leaning over in that big meeting and he's like, I think we should volunteer. Like, you know that's DeVito. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Danny DeVito would be like, hey, Captain, we should... <laughs> That is the right yeah. answer for Danny. What about Whoopi Goldberg? I was going to say Whoopi as the Merovingian. <laughs> oh, oh God. Yep. Just, go on, though. Elaborate, please. Like, either Whoopi as the Merovingian just going totally fancy, crazy, speaking French, or actually, if that's too much, then Whoopi as the woman who's eating the cake. I think that would also be fantastic. <laughs> That could be good for like facial expressions she can make, but that woman mm-hmm. doesn't get, unfortunately doesn't get any lines at all. No, no, no. that doesn't. would be like a cameo. That would really be like, like a winking cameo. Like, Stunt oh, look casting. at here's Whoopi Wilberg for a second. Yeah. I, I think my pick is Whoopi as the architect. Mm. Oh, sure. That's fun. Abby, what about you? Oh, I was just thinking about Whoopi as Seraph, actually. Okay. Oh, in a fight um, very, sequence. Yeah, in a fight sequence. I like this idea. Well, because we were earlier talking about Seraph is is a metaphor for sort of this like, you know, challenge authentication login screen type thing. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I think it's very important that Seraph does that through fighting. But it made me think about Seraph as like a captcha, you know? And oh. I, I just like the idea yeah. of Whoopi Goldberg just presenting a sort of different type of challenge to people mm. like yep. a little sphinx like you know i also think davido and goldberg would be great as the twins um, <laughs> <laughs> they'd make a great well, duo it'd make more sense if it was davido and schwarzenegger right 
Well, of course, because the, but Depends. then you can tell them apart. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! All right. Well, we need to call up Warner Brothers and tell them when they make the Matrix Five, uh, they ha- absolutely have to get on the phone with Devito <laughs> and Goldberg's <laughs> agents. Um, and then they're going to give us a million dollars for giving them the idea. Uh, so, <laughs> AB, Conrado, I'm really glad that I had you on to talk about Matrix Reloaded today. Uh, before we wrap up, before you guys go, um, I'd love for you to talk about some of the things that you do, tell the audience where they can find you, where they can see some of your work. Um, so who wants to go first? AB, please go ahead. Sure. Um, thanks, Lou. It's been an absolute pleasure talking about one of my favorite movies with you guys. Um, if anyone's interested in my work, uh, I most recently wrote and directed the movie Cram, um, which had its premiere this past fall at the Austin Film Festival, where it won the Audience Award for Best Dark Matters Feature, Dark Matters being like their genre category. Um, and if you're listening to this in March, then uh, at the beginning of March, um, we either just soon will or we'll just have... Uh, played an encore screening at that festival at, in Austin um, for that award. Uh, I'll also just have been to Mississippi, where we're playing at the Magnolia Independent Film Festival. The hope is to have a New York premiere sometime this spring or early summer, um, still to be determined where that will be. But I hope that all the friends uh, that we have here in New York, uh, which is where I live, will be able to come out for that. And in the meantime, any festival we play with a virtual component um, will allow you to watch the movie that way. Uh, and then the hope is we'll get distribution some at some point. Uh, Conrado's also in that movie. Um, yeah, hell yeah, he is. And, <laughs> okay. and, and if I just say so myself, it's a pretty great movie. It's a horror movie about um, a guy who's trying to finish his paper, but he's trapped in a spooky library. Yes. So, and the like, movie, is it available to buy or stream currently? Not yet, but eventually it will be. And to finish Conrado's brief pitch, I'll just say it's about this guy, a real terrible student, and he's cramming to finish his final paper. And I think like many of us have had this nightmare, the final paper vanishes. And Uh, that's just the beginning of the movie. It gets way worse from there. Uh, You'll have to see to check it out. Yeah, it's a cool cool surreal horror movie that I was very proud and excited to be a part of. I play a supporting character um, and I had a great time. Thanks, man. Awesome. Um, I'm excited to see And then, see of course, it. the most important other thing that I'm working on, or rather worked on, is Wormhole Season 2, baby. Wormhole Great. Season 2. What's Wormhole Season 2, Conrado? <laughs> Thank Do you, you know? for setting me up for this, A.B. Um, if you're listening to this in March, then uh, Wormhole Season 2 is going to premiere very soon. Wormholes is a web series, a sci-fi comedy about two roommates who live in an apartment with an interdimensional wormhole in the closet, hijinks ensue uh, of all kinds of like science fiction <laughs> variety the whole first season is available to watch on youtube right now if you search wormholes the series and the second season will start coming out um fingers crossed at the end of march and, and there will be new episodes every wednesday throughout the spring now this is very important for everyone listening all the three people that you've been listening to on this podcast are involved in wormhole season two AB is the writer on the show. He wrote two of our episodes this season, and he also plays a role, a very fun character in episode eight. And Lou directed uh, one of the episodes, which is looking really great, by the way. We just watched one of the, uh, the basically the, one of the last cuts of it. We just need to add the score to it. Mm. And Lou also plays a couple of fun uh, small characters here and there that are also very memorable and funny, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, so I encourage you, everyone to uh, please check it out. We had a lot of fun doing the show and we're very proud of it. 
As you should be. I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen Wormholes, I, you should definitely binge the first season. I mean, Lou, I, I feel like we had the same experience on this, but I loved the first season so much that I basically begged Conrado to let me write on it. Exactly the same. Yeah, I, it's it's really really good. I'm gonna link. Uh, I'm gonna put a link in the show notes to the YouTube channel where you can watch the whole entire first season. Um, that's also where you'll get up to the minute news about when the second season comes out. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I I'm friends with Conrado. We went to we all went to school together, the three of us. And um, I so you know you know it's that thing where like a friend is like making an art project and if you're a good friend, you'll support them and you'll watch it and whatever. But like, sometimes it's harder to, to be like, it was really great. I really liked it. Uh, but <laughs> wormholes is something where it was like super easy to be like, Oh my God, this is speaking my language. This is exactly, I, if I didn't know you, I would still be the same level of fan for it. Um, so I'm so glad and honored that I got to be a part of, creating the second season yeah i feel the same way it's so well said too because i remember being like it's good and i had nothing else to say because sometimes like <laughs> when something's good you don't actually have anything to say you're like it's great it's really yeah. great i just know i like it <laughs> thanks for saying that um it was great to have you both on for the second season um i think it's going to be great and I, I i do think that the people who listen to this podcast would have a good time watching it um Definitely. it seems mm-hmm. kind of like up this alley so um and I mean, given everything we've been saying about the Wachowskis and the fact that these are idiosyncratic filmmakers willing to take big swings, I mean, I think part of what makes Wormholes so special is it really just feels like the singular work of of the showrunners, Conrado, Sasha, and Kamal. And they created so much space for all the people who worked on the show to express themselves and, and bring their own creativity and inspiration to to bear. And I think the show just feels really special as a result of that. Nice. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, there's some big swings in season two, so I'm excited for people to check that out. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, ch- uh, take a look at the show notes to see where you can check out Wormholes. Uh, if you want to support Cram and the um, AB uh, in the Magnolia Independent Film Festival, and all of the links will be there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll link to my I'll, website. I'll make sure that he sends all, all of them out. to me. Um, you can check those out. Make sure that you subscribe to Robots vs. Dinosaurs so that next week you can hear our review of The Matrix Revolutions. And uh, if you want to send in your questions, comments, hate mail, uh, anything you want to uh, say, what did we get wrong about The Matrix, um, your hot takes about Bane and who should play him in, this, in the fifth movie, um, <laughs> go ahead and, and send us an email at robosvdinos at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook if you search hard enough. Um, AB and Conrado, it was fantastic having you on today. I, uh, we can talk about this off air, but AB, I think I, I would love to do maybe a bonus episode on the Animatrix. And I think that you have, a, it seems like you have a passion for it. So I'm wondering if maybe we could talk about scheduling that sometime. That would be awesome. I love talking about movies in general, but especially The Matrix. Sweet. Um, Conrado will definitely be returning next week for The Matrix Revolutions with insert name of guest here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We haven't lined them up yet, but uh, stay tuned and thanks for listening. Um, A.B. Conrado, why don't you say, say, say goodbye to the listeners. Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye, listeners. Thanks for 
it's a sequel to the matrix that's all you need to know the matrix is a system neo the system is our enemy but when you're inside you look around what do you see businessmen teachers lawyers carpenters the very minds of the people we are trying to save but until we do these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy Nom de Dieu de Putain, de Bordel de Mer, de Salopère de Canal, d'un Grier de Ta Mère. How many could cactus fight? Maybe infinite? Well, this is a serious question, but like, why does the Merovingian poop and pee? But I'm a program, and I also desire love. This movie's horny. 